This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 229 of the program. Today is Friday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. And before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week. And that includes Aditi Hyder, Alexander Mendeville, Aya Brindley, Baki, Casey Haskins, Chris McMartin, Death Burrito 24, Elias Kulukundis, Farid Ikan, Gus, Henry Lil, I'd Rather Be at the Beach, John Paul Beret, Jelena Kadic, Jerry Rubenfeld, John Lucasen, Justin Deal, Christine Danielson, Laura M., Marius Gurgi, Nancy and Pete Rigoloso, Patrick Butler, Paul Mulebloch, Raphael Melipel, Sam Snap, Self-Taught Artist One, Sonia Merton, Swati Naik, Sylvia Ross, Vahida Hagigi, and Veronica Wicker. So thank you so much to all of these kind souls. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week on the show, we have got another jam-packed episode. We'll talk about Bernie Sanders now being the official frontrunner. Which, of course, is leading to MSNBC hosts freaking out about possible execution squads in Central Park. I'm, of course, talking about Chris Matthews, and we'll talk more about the mainstream media and their attacks. Also, Joe Biden's campaign and sanity continues to decline. We'll revisit the Iowa debacle and discuss the issues already popping up in Nevada. And we'll also take a look back at what happened in 2016 in Nevada. Tom Perez is refusing to resign or hold anyone accountable after the Iowa debacle. Mike Bloomberg is unsurprisingly explicitly racist and the New Hampshire primary took place and we will talk about Bernie Sanders' victory there as well as the candidates that dropped out after New Hampshire and we'll watch the media try to grapple with the reality that Bernie Sanders is in fact now the frontrunner. We'll look at casual discussions in mainstream media about the DNC, I don't know, possibly stealing the nomination outright away from Bernie Sanders. We'll talk about Warren's bitterness, a protester at Mike Bloomberg's rally and how Donald Trump feels about running if it comes down to Bernie Sanders versus Mike Bloomberg. And finally, we'll close the show by talking to 2020 congressional candidate from Texas, Mike Siegel, about his campaign. And that's what we've got on the agenda. So hopefully you all will enjoy the show and stick around for the whole thing. So uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get right into it. All right, folks, so I know that we're all feeling demoralized, and I think rightfully so. After last week's Iowa debacle, we're still putting up with nonstop media bias and attacks against Bernie Sanders, but I just want everyone to take a moment to stop and just breathe. 
relax because we are at the very beginning of a very long and grueling process and there are a lot more primaries to come. Iowa was just one of them. So I'll be talking more about the Iowa disaster in a separate video. But for now, I just want to put everything into perspective for everyone who's a Bernie Sanders supporter because all of the hard work, all of the time that you put in is starting to pay off. Now, a lot of us were really worried about New Hampshire and it's going to be close, right? We don't know what's going to happen at this time. I'm recording this on Monday. Um, we have no idea if it will be Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Currently, it seems as if Pete Buttigieg is in second place still, but Amy Klobuchar is eating into his lead after what I guess a lot of voters perceive to be a good debate performance. So, you know, we're going to have to stand Klobuchar for a bit, but I just want you all to realize that when you look at the betting odds, Bernie's winning. When you look at 538 projections, Bernie Sanders is best positioned to win the Democratic Party primary. And now he is emerging as the frontrunner. Because according to a new Quinnipiac poll, he has overtaken Joe Biden's lead. So Bernie Sanders is now at 25% nationally. That's a four-point increase since January. And Joe Biden is now in second place. That is... Eight points behind Bernie and a nine-point decrease since January. That is huge. And now we have Mike Bloomberg in third place nationally at 15%. That's a seven-point jump. We'll talk about him later. And Elizabeth Warren is now sitting in fourth place at 14%. That's a one-point drop. We have Pete Buttigieg with 10%. That's a four-point increase since January. Amy Klobuchar at 4% nationally. That's a three-point decrease since January. And Andrew Yang sitting at 2%, not making any movement since January. Now, as Ryan Stroig points out, when you look at the overall trend here with regard to Biden, Back in April of 2019, he was sitting, you know, really comfortably at 38%, but you see this gradual decline over the course of the year, and by December, he dropped to 30%, and now he's at 17% nationally, and looking at Real Clear Politics polling averages, you see a really sharp decline for Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders is now just a fraction of a percent away from becoming the official national frontrunner. So this is huge. Bernie Sanders is about to take the lead. In fact, trends indicate that very soon, average polling data will show that he is the frontrunner, which means we're going to see an increase in attacks, which means that we could see, you know, a steeper hill to climb because you're going to see moderates coalesce around one candidate because if they're serious about beating Bernie Sanders, that's what they're going to have to do because they're kind of splitting the vote between Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, and now possibly Mike Bloomberg. And as uh, Washington Post's notorious Bernie hater Jennifer Rubin asks, so who's the moderate to stop Bernie? And you know, it's clear that she'll take anyone. And she's freaking out not just because Bernie Sanders is overtaking Joe Biden nationally, because I mean, here's the thing about the national lead. What really matters the most are these individual primary states, and Bernie Sanders is projected to do very, very well on Super Tuesday. We're talking about winning most of those states, if not all of them. But, you know, I don't want to underestimate our opponents, but part of the main reason why Joe Biden is falling is because voters' perceived electability has decreased. They no longer view Joe Biden as someone who can beat Donald Trump. And that was a huge reason why I think his campaign was propped up for so long. So this Quinnipiac poll shows, according to Sahil Kapoor here, as he explains, Joe Biden's electability number has fallen by 17 points in the last two weeks. Let me repeat that for you. His perceived electability has dropped by 17 points 
in two weeks, according to this Quinnipiac poll. That is absolutely a colossal, colossal decline. Now, 27% of Democrats say that Joe Biden has the best chance at defeating Donald Trump. He's still at number one when it comes to this metric of electability, but he's down from 44%. Now, Sanders is in second place, still technically at 24%, but he has increased by five points, and we have Bloomberg in third place at 17%, although note the increase, that's an eight-point increase. Everyone else is in single digits. So overall, voters believe that when it comes to electability, it's going to be between Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Mike Bloomberg in terms of who can best beat Donald Trump. Um, and it seems like Joe Biden's campaign, they're not really even projecting to do well in uh, New Hampshire at all. It kind of seems like they're banking everything on South Carolina, where Joe Biden technically still has a lead. Tom Steyer somehow has surged to second place in South Carolina, but we'll see how that turns out. If he doesn't perform well in South Carolina, that could very well be the end of his campaign. And by March 3rd, we're going to see this primary take shape. Now, I want to take a moment to focus on Mayor Bloomberg, because when you go back to that real clear politics polling average, you see Bernie Sanders rising. You see a little bit of a surge for Pete Buttigieg but you also see Bloomberg sharply increasing, and he's still far behind, but at this rate, he can catch up to Bernie Sanders within a month. And when you look at this graphic from CNN, you can see why he's doing so well. He is absolutely blowing the rest of the field out when it comes to campaign spending. And that Quinnipiac poll showed that when it comes to perceived electability, Bernie Sanders is in second place, but he had a five-point increase, whereas Mike Bloomberg had an eight-point increase. So the trend shows that Bernie is going to overtake Joe Biden as the front runner, nationally speaking, although Mayor, Mayor uh, Bloomberg could very well be the one to look out for. Now, the thing about Bloomberg is that he is a billionaire. Bernie would love to run against him. And progressives, we haven't even started to go in on Bloomberg, right? And once we do that, I am confident that we can drive down his support. But it shows us that his his strategy to just basically overwhelm the airwaves, it is it's successful, right? That's why people think that he has a chance against Donald Trump. And it's why I don't think progressives at this point in time should count him out. Yes, he's weak on the policy. Yes, he is the individual who implemented stop and frisk. It's a racist policy that disproportionately profiles black and brown people. Uh, but nonetheless, that money is what's going to make him possibly unstoppable. And I'm not saying that I think he has a good shot at winning the nomination, but what I am telling you is that the DNC favors him. And on top of that, uh, Mike Bloomberg is an individual that is going to be in this race until the convention if he feels like it, because when you have that much money, you don't have to worry about your campaign sputtering out. Like Joe Biden, a reason why you know there's a worry there is because you only have so much money. There's a finite amount of resources until you have to call it quits. Same with Amy Klobuchar, same with Elizabeth Warren, right? So Mike Bloomberg doesn't have to worry about that. He could stay in this race indefinitely. And part of the concern there is that just his presence alone may be enough to help him pick up quite a bit of pledged delegates because if moderates in this race really want to defeat Bernie Sanders, then all of Joe Biden and, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg's support may coalesce around Mike Bloomberg. But the good news is that Mike Bloomberg was really betting everything on Super Tuesday. He kind of skipped the first few primary states, right? Um, but currently, as it stands now, 
he doesn't really seem to be doing well. I mean, nationally speaking, he's rising. But what you have to do is win individual states if you want to get pledged delegates, which is how you secure the nomination. So what I will say is that if it's going to come down to a moderate and um, and Bernie Sanders, it's probably going to be Mike Bloomberg at this point in time. I mean, Pete Buttigieg sure had a bump after Iowa, but he has no real path to the nomination at this point in time as I record this video. He has no support with young people. He can't get the support from black people and Latino voters, and he's not doing anything to really change that. Like, he... His campaign tried to arrest someone for handing out Medicare for All flyers. He's now talking about deficit reduction. He's not... <laughs> I mean, this is not going to help you win the nomination. And I get what he wants to do. Like, he wants moderate voters to coalesce around him. But this isn't going to help you, even with moderate voters, right? So, at this point in time, I mean, Mike Bloomberg, he has no reason to exit the race. He's not going to run out of funds. He's self-financing his campaign. And Bernie Sanders also has that momentum from the grassroots to carry him. So regardless if, you know, Mike Bloomberg is mathematically eliminated, he can pick up some delegates if all the moderates wise up and they coalesce behind him. So let's hope that that doesn't happen. But progressives may have to um, gear up to take on Mike Bloomberg. Because when you have that much money, I mean, and you have the institutions, the Democratic Party apparatus, the DNC kind of like going to bat for you, uh, placing your surrogates on the Rules Committee... We do have to be worried there, but let's just take this, you know, one step at a time and let's reflect on everything that we've done. Bernie's basically going to become the front runner, and it's because you have been doing this and we've got a great shot to win the nomination, but um, we can't underestimate our opponents and we've got to fight like hell to make sure that that is in fact the case. And we've got New Hampshire tomorrow. So let's do everything in our power to make sure that he's victorious. Let's make calls for Bernie Sanders. Let's fight like hell. And um, let's just uh, let's just try to breathe a little bit easier, knowing that this is only the beginning, and we can't get demoralized this early. We can't get too uh, discouraged based off of that Iowa debacle because we can't afford to at this point. It's going to be a long process, so let's uh, buckle up. So as Bernie Sanders continues to rise in the polls and perform well in early primary states, and it's projected to do very well overall throughout the course of the primary and possibly dominate on Super Tuesday, you see a lot of elites in mainstream media grapple with the prospect of Bernie Sanders becoming the Democratic Party's nominee. You see individuals like Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post ask, so who's the moderate that's going to take on Bernie Sanders? Because everyone kind of placed their bets on Beto and then Kamala and then, you know, uh... Joe Biden and every single person has failed. It looks like Joe Biden is going to be the next Jeb Bush. So you see a lot of people in mainstream media just freak out in real time. And Chris Matthews is probably taking this the worst out of all the pundits because he um, he responded to Bernie Sanders rise with a reaction that I don't even know how to describe. So just watch. I, I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. And they go back to uh, the early 1950s. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. 
We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. That's, a, that's basically a capitalist country with a lot of good social welfare programs. Denmark is harmless. It's pretty clearly in the Denmark is category. Yeah. Are you sure? How do you know? Did he tell you that? Well, I mean, that's what he says, and that's what his agenda calls for, right? Yeah, yeah. He's not uh, calling yeah, for well, any. Let's I mean, see. Let's see. Let's figure that one out. A, well, we haven't seen a, a campaign yet. Where video of him praising the other version, right. which is Castro, and then, has been used. Well, but that's it a, will be used. That's a question we of how, seen how that plays. Of how tangible, what what the effect that has. In well, what does question. he think of Castro? That's, that's a that? great question. What did you think of Fidel Ismo? We all thought he was great when he first. I thought he was cheering like mad okay. for him I'm gonna, when he first wait, went in, wait, and then he became a communist and started shooting okay. every one of his enemies. Okay, hold, so, hold, hold, hold those thoughts on the Cuban. Hold those thoughts on Cuban revolution. I have to go back to the spin room and Democratic presidential candidate. Chris Hayes was like laughing at him. That is embarrassing. I mean, you are a mainstream news pundit. You are tasked with educating the populace. And you were having a meltdown because of Bernie Sanders. Chris, nobody wants to execute you, man. Bernie just wants to give people health care. That's it. So you're revealing to everyone what an idiot you are. Who believes... That Bernie Sanders wants to implement a Cuban-style revolution here in America. He talks about revolution, but what he's referring to is a political revolution. We have had multiple political revolutions throughout the course of American history. We had FDR. That was a political revolution with the New Deal. We had the Reagan Revolution. That's what it's literally called, the Reagan Revolution, where he kind of swung that pendulum back to the right. And we're now to the logical conclusion of that far-right politics with Donald Trump. Regardless, I mean, we've had political revolutions. He's not talking about regime change in America. I mean, he, he just wants people to have health care, to save the planet. And uh, what does uh, Chris Matthews interpret that as? I believe if Castro and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones to be executed, and other people would have been there cheering. Now, I've watched this clip multiple times, and it looked like he was going to tear up, like he is genuinely horrified at the prospect of Bernie Sanders becoming the president. And, you know, I'm kind of torn on this because on one hand, I want to make fun of him because he deserves to be made fun of for being so painfully stupid, but on another hand, you know, we have to educate these types of people because he does represent, I think, a portion of the electorate who has believe the propaganda. Bernie doesn't want to hurt anyone. The people in this movement don't want to hurt anyone. We want to help people. Help us help you. We want you to have education and healthcare to all of the people who dislike this video and, you know, call me a socialist dipshit or cuck or whatever the fuck they call me. I want you to have healthcare too. Even the dickheads get healthcare. Nobody's left behind in our ideal vision of America. And we might not be able to accomplish even like a fraction of our agenda, but regardless, we want to fight for that because we believe deeply in justice and equality and not just in, you know, a platitude sense. We believe it to our core, like it's embedded in our DNA. So the fact that you would interpret that as, oh, well, you know, he must want to kill us. Stop. You're being ridiculous right now. We want to help people. We had a social democrat elected before. His name was FDR, and he was one of the most popular presidents in American history. Now, I think that Bernie is more accurately a social democrat and not a, de not a democratic socialist. But regardless, it doesn't matter. Like, 
just look at the policies that he's proposing. At what point do you listen to Bernie and interpret what he's saying in a fearful way, as if he's some sort of existential threat to you personally, to where we're going to execute you? Like, when he talks about the billionaires and saying billionaires shouldn't exist, he's not saying, let's go execute the billionaires. He's saying, let's tax their wealth so we can pay for programs that would benefit the needy. He's not saying, you know, um, let's let's hurt anyone. Like, what are you talking about? This is an individual who is fundamentally opposed to hatred and violence of any kind. So for you to say this, it just shows that even someone who should theoretically be the most educated is just overtaken by emotions and is hysterical. Imagine if Bernie Sanders were to get elected president. Chris Matthews wouldn't be able to contain himself. I mean, educate yourself. You're on national television, Chris. Like, people watching this who aren't very savvy, who aren't educated, who are low-information voters are going to see you freak out, and then they may freak out and think, oh, wow, maybe I missed, you know, this part of Bernie Sanders' speech where uh, he wants to hurt me. I mean, what the fuck are you talking about? This is absolutely bananas. Like, MSNBC, if they want to maintain their credibility, they've got to remove people like Chris Matthews from their network, because this makes them look, look absolutely terrible. I mean, you can't have someone on your network who's so terrified of a candidate who just wants to give everyone healthcare and education that he thinks he's going to get killed. Oh, well, this is like, you know, the Fidel Castro revolution in Cuba. I mean, Jesus Christ, get it together. I don't know what else to say about this. Get it the fuck together, man. This is not normal behavior. You're a grown man, and you're supposed to be educating people. You're in the news. You're one of the most well-known pundits, and you're freaking out because you think that Bernie Sanders is akin to Fidel Castro, and that people are going to be gunned down in the streets. Why would we want that? We live in America. Do you think that we want to live in a fucking war zone like that? Do you think we'd want that in America? We just want to help people. We don't want people to die. We're against death and destruction. We're the ones against war. We're the ones who are fighting for healthcare for every single person. So for you to worry like that, like I find, I find your lack of intelligence insulting and embarrassing for you, but it's just, it's insulting. The people who are the most compassionate are perceived by idiots like Chris Matthews to be the, uh, the most ruthless and barbaric. No, that's you. So, I mean, this is just, it's what we've come to expect from individuals like Chris Matthews, but we shouldn't tolerate this. Like, this should be unac unacceptable. Like, MSNBC should not have people like Chris Matthews who are that uninformed that they believe that social democracy is tantamount to a violent revolution i mean <laughs> even your own colleagues laugh at you at what point do you at least try to do better and educate yourself on the bare minimum of what you talk about every single night chris i mean i don't even know what to say to this it's just it's it's absurd so over the course of the last month, since Bernie Sanders has really started to surge, we've seen the return of the so-called Bernie bro myth and narrative. Even if demographically speaking and statistically speaking, that 
doesn't reflect reality, the media has wanted to bring that back in hopes of, I don't know, maybe dissuading people from supporting Bernie Sanders because his supporters are so quote-unquote toxic. Um, but regardless, this week, CNN and MSNBC, they really did everything in their power to really sell us on that narrative, and they did this by using what they believe to be evidence that uh, Bernie supporters are absolutely toxic, and not only that, they are bullying and harassing people online. Now, their evidence of said behavior? Well, according to an investigation by CNN, emojis. Bernie supporters are bullying and harassing people, and I use those terms loosely, with emojis, specifically snake and rat emojis. Take it away, CNN. You are a loud crowd. Say one thing bad about Bernie Sanders online anywhere, and Strident Sanders supporters may attack you personally. Multiple targets describe to CNN what they call a Sanders swarm, an online army of supporters on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, some even digging into their personal lives, trying to out their identity, bully, and frighten them into silence. MIT lecturer Michael Trice says over and over again, the bullying works. The type of harassment that occurs it is deeply hurtful. It's scary. It's frightening. Uh, personally, I've had my job threatened online. Many people have experienced far, far worse. And unless someone is willing to do more, then yes, it, it can only escalate because it's effective. An outspoken Elizabeth Warren supporter whose daughter with Down syndrome is just recovering from cancer was told, you're stupid like your retard kid. Too bad the cancer didn't kill her. Sanders' opponents are told to eat this, poop, and shut the F up. An activist dying of ALS tweeted support for Elizabeth Warren and was told, go F yourself. When the Working Families Party also endorsed Warren, it was swarmed. Bloodless, scumbag hacks. Corrupt. Shameless. One user told the group's leader who is black, slave masters had coerced his endorsement. The abuse so bad, Sanders had to respond, tweeting that that ALS activist was actually a friend. And in another tweet, the candidate signaled to his followers that this campaign condemns racist bullying and harassment of any kind. It's not clear if the Sanders followers responsible are listening. In recent weeks, trolling Senator Elizabeth Warren as a snake and in post after post, labeling Mayor Pete Buttigieg a rat. Two victims of this tell CNN they were so afraid of the online attacks they faced, they don't even want us to describe the circumstances for fear it would start up again. They both just questioned the politics of Bernie Sanders in a public setting and their personal lives were exposed and attacked. Ben Decker, who studies online harassment and threats, says it's unclear how the swarms start. But Sanders supporters have been organizing in Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit communities since 2016 and have only grown stronger. And while social media harassment happens across the political spectrum, Decker says the sheer number of Sanders' online supporters sets them apart from other followers. I think any time where you have far greater numbers, you have far greater potential for harm. And in the online community, there are far greater Sanders supporters. Decker used Facebook's data to analyze all the pages created by the supporters of Democratic presidential candidates. 
and found the pro-Sanders pages have 2.5 million followers with nearly 58,000 posts in a three-month period, far more than all the other Democratic candidates combined. If only a fraction of those engage in nasty comments, they're still capable of bullying critics off social media. Now, I'm not going to try to overly psychoanalyze, you know, that segment. I don't necessarily know if they were hoping that Bernie Sanders supporters would see this and, you know, take it to heart and just settle down and be nicer. But what I love, what I think is poetic justice, is that CNN got to experience the Sanders swarm firsthand because when you look at the CNN segment posted to YouTube, it got ratioed <laughs> into oblivion with 7,000 total dislikes, of course, including yours truly as well. And it is comical to me that they are, with a straight face, trying to convince people that snake emojis and rat emojis are tantamount to bullying. If you're that fragile, how are we going to expect you to be able to go up against Donald Trump? You're going to cry when his supporters call you a cuck? I mean, unbelievable. So we're supposed to just accept that what this is is bullying and harassment because it's a swarm, right? The statistics that they provide you with, uh, they show that Bernie Sanders had, has the largest social media following of all the candidates. But rather than actually doing a qualitative analysis, they just, you know cherry pick a couple of examples of snake emojis and whatnot but the problem is that we already know that you're full of shit because back in 2016 there was a qualitative analysis done that found that bernie sanders supporters were actually the least hostile online i repeat the least hostile online and hillary supporters were more aggressive and they were only less aggressive than trump supporters but in spite of that of course we all know the entire media narrative built around 2016 was that you know Aggressive Bernie bros were harassing mostly female people of color Hillary Clinton supporters. We know that that's bogus, but nonetheless, they still push that narrative, and now they're trying to do it again. So why should we believe you? Like, you haven't actually conducted a qualitative and quantitative analysis. This is just you taking a couple of screenshots, crying about how Bernie supporters were mean to you. I mean, look, listen, there are books such as Manufacturing Consent that we've read that we know about and how the mainstream media, the corporate owned media tries to create these narratives. They try to manufacture consent and get people ultimately to believe things that serve the narrative of, of corporate America. So when you say something about Bernie Sanders and we correct you, that's not a swarm. That's you just getting called out because you said something wrong. So riddle me this, when you have someone on CNN saying that Bernie Sanders makes their skin crawl, what are we supposed to do? When you have body language experts coming on national television to prove that Bernie is a liar, what are we supposed to do? Just shut up and take it? That's honestly what they want. They want us to shut up and take it. That's the end goal of this. They want to communicate to us that, you know, if we speak up and defend Bernie, we're making him look bad. So if we want to win, maybe we should shut the fuck up. Well, uh, no. Because if you admit that it's working, we're going to keep doing it because this is not harassment. I mean, you can go to any one of my YouTube comments um, or my Facebook comments and you can see hatred. You can Google me and find hatred. But guess what? I mean, that's part of the process. Like, we all get this. And, you know, there's this underlying assumption that this is mostly young millennials and the mainstream media, you know, they'll just as quickly run away with the narrative that we're overly sensitive snowflakes. But at the same time, we're also super hyper aggressive Bernie bros. 
And I love that they cite one of the examples from a Bernie Sanders supporter who is also a trans artist. Her name is Elsie. And at the time that they posted that, you know, that that rat the picture of Pete, which is amazing, by the way, only had 13 likes. But now it has more than 20,000 likes. So the effect that they wanted this to have, I mean, the opposite happened, obviously, needlessly to say, um, needless to say. And, you know, they do cite examples of, you know, well, this one person tweeted out this thing to Adi Barkin, who's a Medicare for All activist who endorsed Elizabeth Warren, where he, he said, go fuck yourself. Right, and we don't condone that. And I specifically remember people being disappointed with Adi Barkin's endorsement, uh, but still respecting him and respecting his wish because this individual is an activist who's dying. So of course, we're not gonna berate him and bombard him. And I remember Sanders supporters being really like respectful but I mean, of course, you're going to find one person like every you can basically cherry pick every single movement or anything, cherry pick whatever you want and try to use that as an example to generalize. But understand that that's just one example. And that one example does not denote general applicability. But CNN doesn't really understand that because they want to push a certain narrative. And the narrative is that Bernie bros are evil. And uh, if you support Bernie Sanders, then you must be condoning this. And Bernie Sanders also, he goes on to say in that segment really should be doing more to condemn this. He has already, but he should be doing more to condemn this. So, I mean, this is just, this is the perfect example of manufacturing consent. This is propaganda. But CNN wasn't alone because MSNBC also decided to attack supporters of a major Jewish candidate by comparing them to Nazis. I kid you not. Sanders supporters are like digital brown shirts. This is from MSNBC. There is no star, but this is this is the other thing. This is what I'm hearing just sort of out and about the country. A lot of people are saying, a lot of very enthusiastic voters are saying, yeah, you all figure it out and I'll figure it out once you guys have decided. I don't think it's so much that people aren't excited about who's running. They may have their excitement spread across multiple people and they're waiting for somebody else to make the decision. Because you can't tell me that people aren't excited about Bernie Sanders. That may not be the majority, but you can't say people aren't excited about well, the That's his the advantage here. Bernie Sanders has a huge advantage in New Hampshire, which he had, a, you know, which he did so well in sixty percent in, in four years ago, and he's still local. He's they're enthusiastic, and they will not be denied. And that's the other problem going forward. There is going to be a huge resentment if some huge pool of money goes elsewhere. If Bloomberg makes a move, if Biden collapses, if there's a stop Bernie movement, that is going to be to hell will pay with the Bernie people because they are so committed. Hey, I want to bring up something that um, Jonathan um, last put in the uh, bulwark today, and it was about how, and Ruth, we've all been on the, on the receiving end of the, of the Bernie online brigade, and here's what he says. He says, no other candidate has anything like this sort of digital brown shirt brigade, I mean, except for Donald Trump. The question no one is asking is this, what if you can't win the presidency without an online mob? What if we now live in a world where having a bullying agro-social media army running around, popping anyone who sticks their head up is either an important ingredient for or a critical market marker of success? Wow. Okay, that's I like know everybody's freaking out about this, but you saw the MAGA rally that's preparing around here. There are people coming from three or four states on that. That's real, and you know, that is a... This is like burning. So I don't really take issue with the substance there. Um, I think that you need to have a lot of enthusiastic online support to run an effective campaign. But you're comparing Bernie Sanders supporters, Bernie's Jewish, to Nazis. Digital brown shirts. Does anybody just stop and think at how disgusting they're being? 
Like, you want us to reflect on our behavior, but do you ever reflect on your behavior? I will say unequivocally, I condemn bullying and harassment and doxing and brigading. Will you condemn any of the propaganda that you see against Bernie Sanders supporters? When do you guys have to take responsibility for, you know, uh, any of the Pete Buttigieg supporters who spread misinformation? I've been smeared by them. Pete Buttigieg supporters have laughably called me homophobic on numerous occasions, right? But you don't see me crying about it. This is part of politics, but yet it's only the Bernie Sanders supporters who are demonized. But one good takeaway I like from that is that Andrea Mitchell said that, you know, if there is some sort of concerted effort to stop Bernie, there would be hell to pay with the Bernie people because they're so committed. That made me feel good because she's she's absolutely right. Of course, there would be hell to pay. Um, If you think that we're going to get cheated two elections in a row and just take that lying down, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And what we really see is this effort by Democratic Party loyalists to police Bernie Sanders supporters. And as, you know, this debacle unfolds in Iowa, as we get fucked over and we watch it happen in real time, we are supposed to assure the Democratic Party establishment that, you know, we'll be supportive, we'll be loyal. You're going to vote blue no matter who, right? You're going to vote blue no matter who? Please tell me, tell me. You're going to support the nominee, right, if it's not Bernie? How about you fuck off? How about you fuck off and you give us some fucking respect? Because Bernie Sanders has created the most diverse, youngest, most enthusiastic coalition, and all we get from the media, rather than celebrating what is happening and what we've accomplished, we get denigrated. We get attacked as this hateful mob when this supposedly, you know, bullying and harassing community of Sanders supporters is fighting to save people's lives, fighting to save the planet, fighting for healthcare. So it really is, it's morally reprehensible. It is morally reprehensible. And Chuck Todd pointed out, we've all been on the receiving end of the online Bernie Brigade. Except the problem with that, Todd, is that it's not like we're just attacking you because you said, well, you know, I don't like the way that Bernie Sanders dresses. Like, you will literally lie about Bernie Sanders, spread misinformation and propaganda about his policies. Like, Chuck Todd, I specifically remember, was spreading misinformation about Medicare for All, making it seem as if there's no way to pay for it. I mean, this is all propaganda that originates from these private insurance companies uh, and their corporate, you know, lobbyists and whatnot. So, I mean, for you to just make it seem as if you're innocent, how about this? How about we'll all admit that we're guilty? We'll all admit collectively that maybe we're all guilty of something here. Maybe we all can treat people better. But you wouldn't do that. The mainstream media and their pundits wouldn't do that. It's just Bernie Sanders supporters who have to be demonized. So, listen... Don't buy it. Don't believe that snake emojis and rat emojis are harassment because they're not. Like, shitposting and trolling, I mean, what do you want us to do? Like, (laughs) that's all, that's harmless. That is harmless. And if you can't take the heat, then get the fuck out of the kitchen. Like, that's not harassment. I condemn any instances of real harassment and doxing, right? I don't, I don't condone uh, any sort of like bullying people into silence where they're saying, hey, if you if you don't shut up, I'm going to leak your information. Like, of course, we don't condone that. And the most prominent Sanders supporters wouldn't condone that. But they're looking for everything. 
They have a magnifying glass, and they're scouring all corners of the internet to find any snake emoji or rat emoji that they can use as evidence that we're bullying people. So that way, you know, we shut the fuck up. But it's not going to happen. You're not going to convince us that we're bad people because we know we're not bad people. And when we just post snake emojis and rat emojis, that's not bullying or harassment. And you're being really fucking stupid to suggest that it is. So the last thing I'll say is that I really wish that CNN would have used one of my snake emoji tweets at Pete Buttigieg. I knew that they would come up with some type of segment, not necessarily CNN, but some media outlet would complain about the snake emojis and the rat emojis. I wish they would have used mine because I'm unapologetic and I'm not stopping. And look, we're not going to harass people, but are we going to troll and have fun online? Yes. Is that going to uh, lead to you demonizing us? Yes, but you're going to do that anyway. Like, even if 99.9% of Sanders supporters were uh, not active online at all, you'd find that 0.01% and you'd use that to represent our whole movement because your goal isn't to do some sort of qualitative analysis about the aggressiveness of Bernie Sanders supporters. Your goal is to take him down and take us down as a result. But we're not buying it. And you can keep trying to smear us. But I mean, we don't give a shit. So enjoy the Sanders swarm and all the dislikes, dipshits, because you earned that. So I really want to take a moment to talk about Joe Biden and just really urge anyone, if you're watching this and you know Joe Biden, maybe just check in on him, make sure he's doing okay. Because <laughs> we keep seeing these weird outbursts from Joe Biden. You know, a couple of weeks ago, he had his why, 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 why moment with the reporter. And now we have this where he calls someone <laughs> just watch hi my name is madison and i'm an econ student at mercer university and oh awesome um so i'm gonna be a little bit mean for a second okay so <laughs> um <laughs> um so you're arguably the candidate with the greatest advantage in this race you've been the vice president you weren't burdened down by the impeachment trials, so, or in the participation. So, how do you explain the performance in Iowa, and why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? It's a good question. Number one, I was a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> he called her a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Anyone? I don't know, guys. I don't know. What do you, what do you even say to that? You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. What the fuck? <laughs> and look, he, you know, he tried to be a good sport because she asked him a pretty tough question and it probably made him feel a little bit insecure about his chances. And he really should be worried right now. I would be worried if I was on Team Biden currently. Thank God I'm not. And um, he lashed out seemingly and called her a lying dog faced pony soldier. Okay.
Interesting. Now, before I comment further on this, um, the girl who was called a long dog faced pony soldier was interviewed by Fox News. She's only 21 years old, and this is what she had to say in response. Campaign says that Joe Biden's actually used the line before, but it doesn't make it any more relatable to a 21 year old college student from Mercer University named Madison Moore. She had asked the vice president how he planned to compete nationally after such a poor showing in Iowa. Here was her response. A lot of what he's saying seems to be really pathos-based and very sad. Uh, we, we have heard a lot about deaths and cancer and people losing their jobs. And to me, he doesn't really seem very solution-oriented. And I don't think he has the momentum to carry this to a national election. Yeah, so he's not talking much about policy. And, quote, I don't think he has enough momentum to carry this to a national election. Exactly. Exactly. Like, maybe people are starting to realize that if you see no momentum for a campaign, then the writing is on the wall. I mean, the same thing was there with Hillary Clinton back in 2015 and 2016. She would have, like, trouble filling up school gymnasiums. Like, there was no momentum there for her, right? And you saw these huge crowds with thousands and thousands of people, you know, lining up to see Bernie Sanders. And the same thing is happening with Joe Biden. But, you know, name recognition, um, just this perceived electability, it carried him to this point. But, you know, when push comes to shove, voters in Iowa showed that he's not doing too well. And worse yet, you know, I don't think he's expecting to perform very well in New Hampshire. I don't think he believes he will win. It's probably going to come down to Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. But there are some polls showing that Joe Biden may even perform worse than Amy Klobuchar, like he's polling in fifth place. Now, if he performs in fourth place in Iowa and fifth place in New Hampshire, will he even be able to make it to South Carolina? Because he's kind of betting everything on South Carolina, because that's the state where he's had a gargantuan lead throughout this process. And Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders pretty badly in South Carolina back in 2016. So he's hanging on for dear life hoping that he can win South Carolina so people will believe that he's still viable. But now you see this, you know, uh, surge of Tom Steyer out of nowhere in South Carolina. Bernie Sanders is in third place. I'm hoping that he'll outperform the polls. Regardless, that's basically what is keeping Joe Biden's campaign going. Just this thought that if we can make it to South Carolina, maybe we'll have a little bit of momentum going into Super Tuesday. But the problem is that, you know, the South Carolina primary takes place. And then just days later, we have Super Tuesday. So I mean, if you're going to get that bump, you at least want, I'm assuming, you know, a week worth of news coverage that shows, oh, well, maybe Joe Biden is still in this. So that way that narrative can kind of, you know, spread and people can kind of internalize it and realize, okay, maybe he's not out yet. But I mean, if he finishes in fifth place in New Hampshire, we'll find out tomorrow, hopefully, assuming everything goes well. Man, I, I just, I don't know that he'll be able to make it. And you can kind of see it on his face that he realizes this is the end of the road. And, um, like, nobody believes, I don't think even Joe Biden believes he wants to do this right now. I think he wants to retire, but he probably felt like this was going to be an easy primary race. You're the former vice president. You jump in, you have the most name recognition, and you just beat everyone else. Except that's not happening. And rather than just choosing to sit this one out, he's kind of tarnishing his legacy. He's hurting his legacy. Because, you know, if he just chose to retire after being vice president, everyone would have remembered him fondly as Obama's vice president, the first African-American president's VP. But he jumped in. 
immediately got me tooed by four women who accused him of touching him inappropriately, which was obvious to everyone, but it wasn't discussed at a national level. His entire record, you know, a racist record, the crime bill, him praising segregationists was exposed and his legacy was tarnished because of this primary and he knew it would be brutal, but nonetheless, like a lot of elites, he was just so arrogant and felt entitled to the primary when he's not reading the room. Like, it's a different era in American politics. And after eight years of him being in power, not many people feel as if their lives have changed for the better. And if they have, maybe not enough. So it's just, it wasn't his time. And really, he's ran multiple primary campaigns before and lost every time. It was Obama who carried him across the finish line. So you kind of see, like, it's almost sad in a way. Like, you see it in his face. Like, he knows the end is near. And you see that reaction. The, you know, the outbursts. The why, 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 The uh, lying dog-faced pony soldier. You, you see it. And in a way, it really is sad. Like, just from a human level. Like, I don't like Joe Biden. His policies are absolute garbage. Overall, his, his career is just... I mean, how do you characterize it? His record is atrocious. He voted for a war that killed possibly a million people, hundreds of thousands at a minimum. So, you know, we wouldn't be talking about that if he just chose to stay home. We just remember him as Obama's VP. But he jumped in and he tarnished his legacy and now he's probably going to lose. That's tough. And we're kind of seeing him grapple with this in real time as he has these types of outbursts. It's been a week since the Iowa debacle, and um, it's still really unbelievable what happened. Like, it doesn't feel like I'm talking about the United States. It feels like I'm talking about some authoritarian third world country. And I wanted to give you an update, but I mean, this is so difficult because I don't know where to start. I don't know where to end. This story is so big and broad that it's it's almost incomprehensible. And really, as we you know sift through the sewage that is the Iowa results... We honestly haven't even gotten to the most scandalous aspect of this story because last week when I talked about this, you know, I touched on the conflicts of interest and I said that it doesn't matter if you chalk this up to incompetence or malfeasance. What matters is that we get the results and we can trust in the process. So I will give you the latest update on the Iowa results and I wasn't... I wasn't, again, sure where to start, so I'm going to start from the very beginning and I think it's important to kind of give you the full scope of what's going on and I'm going to touch on things that are seemingly irrelevant but you really need to know and I want to demonstrate how there's this anti-Bernie bias that is embedded within the Democratic Party establishment both at state and national levels and it's not really a, an anti-Bernie bias this is more of an anti-grassroots bias because the Democratic Party it doesn't matter what level it's at they all have the same billionaire millionaire multinational corporate donors and they want to protect their own asses. They want to protect their jobs. So they're all against Bernie Sanders. So even if you're not believing that there's some vast conspiracy to take down Bernie Sanders, you know, that bias is going to have an impact at all levels. And we're kind of seeing how that impacts the process itself. So let's talk about Iowa, but let's take it back to 2019 before we go to present day. So last year in April of 2019, as you'll recall, the New York Times published an article discussing the Democratic Party establishment's concern over Bernie Sanders' momentum. Now, in this article, there was a paragraph that's 
stood out to a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters about undisclosed dinners between Democratic Party elites and leaders. That includes Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Terry McAuliffe, Neera Tanden, and also, conspicuously, Pete Buttigieg. Now, look, this doesn't tell us anything about Iowa, but what it does communicate to us is that the Democratic Party establishment has an affinity for Pete Buttigieg, and they were colluding with him to figure out ways to stop Bernie Sanders. Now, am I suggesting that they were talking about ways to rig the voting? No, but they were talking about ways that they can maybe strategically, you know, uh, take down Bernie Sanders. So they like Pete Buttigieg and they don't like Bernie Sanders. That's what you need to know. But on top of that, last Sunday before the Iowa caucus took place, as you'll all recall, the Des Moines Register spiked a poll at the behest of Buttigieg's campaign because they claimed that there was an error. Now, let's not forget that leading up to the Iowa caucus, Hillary Clinton has been relentlessly and repeatedly attacking Bernie Sanders. And on caucus night, we all remember how we got no results, but Pete Buttigieg declared victory anyway. And at this point in time, we didn't know why we didn't receive any results, but this was the video that I put out last week explaining what we were learning in real time, basically. First of all, the Iowa State Democratic Party lied to us. They, when the results were supposed to start coming in, told us that there was a little bit of a delay because of quality assurance. Now, nobody knows what that means. Nobody trusts the Iowa State Democratic Party or the DNC. I want a quality check on their quality assurance check. Um, but they later came out and said, actually, the app that we're using to report the numbers isn't working. It is an app developed by this uh, company called Shadow. And this is a company that Pete Buttigieg's campaign suspiciously donated more than $20,000 to two times. Now, this company is comprised of former Hillary Clinton alum, because after demonstrating that they're part of a team that is the most incompetent in Democratic Party history, of course, they'd go on to fail up and get jobs developing an app that literally, you know, is going to influence democracy. Now, if that wasn't enough, we find out that the CEO of Acronym, the parent company to Shadow, is married to a senior advisor to the Buttigieg campaign. So after we get no results, Bernie Sanders' team puts out 40% of uh, the total, showing them in the lead. And then the following morning, this is the day after the Iowa caucus, uh, they put out more results with 60% showing that Bernie Sanders had a comfortable lead is the way that they described it. But then midday, we get 62% of the results from the IDP, which is the Iowa Democratic Party, and it shows that Pete Buttigieg is actually the one in the lead, which then leads to this media narrative about Pete Buttigieg, you know, having this upset victory. And, you know, this media narrative began to spread rather quickly, and it led to Pete Buttigieg getting a bump in New Hampshire. Now, they then released more results, so painfully wrong that individuals found out that they were literally distributing delegates that were supposed to go to Bernie to Tom Steyer and Deval Patrick. So the Iowa Democratic Party corrected that supposedly, but then they released results showing actually Bernie Sanders might actually win. Um, so that kind of stops the media narrative that Pete is victorious. And then all of a sudden, days after we don't get the full results, the DNC chairman, Tom Perez, calls for a recanvas. So let me repeat that. Once the IDP results show Bernie Sanders is leading... Then Tom Perez decides, days later, to call for a read canvas. But then conveniently, 100% of the results get released as Pete Buttigieg takes the stage for his CNN town hall, which is when Chris Cuomo announces to him that he won, which, I mean, the timing there is just impeccable, and 
absolutely benefits Pete Buttigieg intentionally or unintentionally. I mean, this is all uh, something that I'm sure he was celebrating. Now, while CNN basically announced that Pete Buttigieg had won, more responsible news outlets like the Associated Press and the New York Times were unable to declare who the winner was because not only were the results incredibly close, but there were so many errors that you couldn't possibly, with any sort of confidence, declare a winner. And just to give you a snapshot of some of these errors, CNBC's John Schoen and Tucker Higgins explain a common error, according to CNBC's analysis, is that in many precincts, possibly more than 80, the number of votes counted in what's known as the final alignment was greater than the number in the first alignment. That discrepancy is theoretically impossible under caucus rules, which are determined by the state party. Under those rules, voters gather in the first alignment to express support for their candidates. Supporters of candidates who do not reach a minimum viability threshold, generally 15%, must reallocate their support in the final alignment. It is possible for the number of voters in the final alignment to decrease from the first alignment, for instance. There are cases in which a supporter of a non-viable candidate in the first alignment simply did not vote in the final alignment, but it is seemingly impossible for there to be an increase in voters for the final alignment. But on top of that, some other examples of errors come from journalist Daniel Nikanian, who explains how it's just the entire process has been riddled with errors and it's mathematically incoherent is the way that he describes it. And he explains how one common error that he's found is that extra delegates are being awarded. So for example, if one precinct only has 11 delegates, well, for whatever reason, he's found these instances where that precinct distributed 12 delegates, which means that that's obviously incorrect. They don't have that extra delegate and it needs to be corrected. And on top of that, MSNBC Steve Kornacki has been absolutely uh, just really helpful in demonstrating the results. Although what's interesting is that as he was explaining these errors or about to, one of the producers at MSNBC just screamed in his ear inexplicably. In the margin here, you see this is one-tenth of one percent. This is a difference of two state delegate equivalents. That is a tiny microscopic difference. That is the closest that would be if it went, uh, if it was official, that would be the closest result in the history of the Iowa caucuses. You know, four years ago, Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. I remember we were up all night. They didn't declare a winner till the next day. The margin then was four state delegate equivalents. That was by far the closest in history. We never thought we'd see another closer one. And yet it looks like we have so close with those errors, Stephanie, with questions about whether the state party even followed the correct tabulating procedures for these satellite caucuses. Decision death just does not believe right now with 100 per Sorry, what's that? The voice in your head. Yeah. Right now, with a hundred per... Sorry, what's that? The voice in your head. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. Uh, but you were just saying the decision desk does not... So, yes, to, uh, you know, to have full confidence to declare a winner here, you can't have those kinds of inconsistencies. Now, obviously, we don't know what was said in his earpiece, but what I do know is that Ed Schultz, who used to work at MSNBC, told us before he died that the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, called him and told him not to report on the launch of Bernie's 2016 campaign. This was in 2015. He told us that. So we know at a bare minimum that MSNBC doesn't want to cover Bernie Sanders. And now we see Steve Kornacki about to educate viewers about errors and then... He gets yelled at in his ear. Well, that's weird. But, uh, you know, that's just a little bit of the errors. We can't possibly go into all of it because this is just 
it's a clusterfuck. So looking at it would be very difficult and trying to explain it all. Just know that there's a lot of errors, right? But putting the errors aside, assuming that they're corrected, well, you know, you'd expect Bernie will win overall. And it seemed like regardless, you know, Buttigieg and Bernie would come away with the same number of delegates. Although New York Times reporter Trip Gabriel finds out that Buttigieg somehow gained delegates somewhere throughout this process and will come away with 14 in the end, whereas Bernie Sanders will get 12. Now at face value, you'd think, okay, well, this is probably just because they haven't, you know, fixed the errors yet and haven't taken into account that adjustment. But no, actually, as journalist Samuel Finkelstein explains, remaining errors and popular vote aside, this is disproportionate to the number IDP is reporting. If Buttigieg received 0.49% more state delegate equivalents than Sanders, why would he receive 17% more national delegates? So the math doesn't even make sense putting the errors aside. But that's not even the biggest scandal yet, believe it or not. The biggest scandal is that when it comes to all of these errors and the question of when they're going to get fixed, well, the answer is never. Yeah, because as New York Times reporter Trip Gabriel also explains, tonight the IDP chair, Troy Price, sent an internal email that the party attorney says any re-examination of precinct results cannot change the results on caucus math worksheets, even if they are wrong. And then he adds, quoting the opinion of the IDP attorney, the incorrect math on the caucus math worksheets must not be changed to ensure the integrity of the process. Let me repeat that for you. They can't change mathematical errors because they want to ensure the integrity of the process. So if they see that one plus one equals three on a worksheet, they can't change it because they care about integrity. Yeah. Now, uh, remember how I talked about that embedded hatred of Bernie Sanders deeply within the Democratic Party's institutions? Well, the chair of the IDP, Troy Price, also happens to be a huge Hillary Clinton supporter. He was very vocal about his support for Hillary back in 2016, and he put out numerous tweets of support for her and implied that Hillary supporters needed to be protected from Bernie supporters. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but I think that part of the reason why he has these feelings is because he worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Yeah, kind of a major detail that a lot of us overlooked. He literally worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So um, to say that this is a conflict of interest would be an understatement, given that, again, Hillary Clinton has been relentlessly attacking Bernie Sanders throughout the course of this primary leading up to Iowa primarily. So yeah, there's that. And at a press conference, he tried to explain why they can't, more likely they won't, but why they can't correct these errors, and this press conference went exactly as you would have expected an IDP press conference to go. I understand why maybe raw preference numbers can't be altered, but if there are mathematical rounding errors, why can't those be adjusted? Because these sheets are signed not only by the precinct chair and the precinct secretary, uh, and the precinct chair and the precinct secretary, they're also signed uh, by campaign representatives. And so for us, they are the official record of what took place in the room. And at, uh, we do not believe that we should be uh, altering what is the official record of what happened in the room. The course for correcting that is what is starting here today, starting with the canvas process, and then if uh, requested a recount after that. 
and that's what we will, uh, and so that's where we are in the process. The process does exist to correct that, and that's what we are starting. So because it's now part of the official record, it can't be corrected. So in other words, in 2024 and 2028, if you are a precinct captain and you don't like the results, you can just write in whatever delegate count you want and the IDP can't change it because they'd be uh, correcting official record, which is worse than correcting mathematical errors. Yeah. So the fact that Troy Price hasn't resigned yet is absolutely a joke. The fact that Tom Perez hasn't resigned yet is just laughable. As I predicted, there would be no accountability, and that's part of the issue. Like, for us to even start to begin the process of maybe possibly trusting any of these results, we'd need some accountability. But we're getting the opposite. In fact, someone who worked for Pete Buttigieg's campaign is now working for the Nevada Democratic Party. More on that in a different video, but I mean, do you understand the issue here? The precedent that this sets up? So if the results are written down, it doesn't matter if they're wrong, we can't correct them. Is that because you can't or you won't correct them, Troy Price? Is that because you like the results because it goes against the candidate who you dislike very much? It's ridiculous, and the latest update that I have for you at the time I'm recording this is that Bernie Sanders' campaign has called for a re-canvas in certain precincts in an attempt to correct these errors. Now, we don't necessarily know if that will be conducive to a better uh, end result. We don't know why Pete Buttigieg just inexplicably gets two extra delegates than Bernie Sanders when they should theoretically be tied. We don't know. There's a lot of open questions that we don't have the answers to, and the worst part is that we don't know when we're going to get the answers to these questions. It's just all one big clusterfuck, and the situation is so muddled, I don't even know what to say about it. So that's where we're at. Of course, I will um, give you additional details if we learn about it, but as we learn more and more, the situation gets worse and worse. It becomes more suspicious, um, more conflicts of interest are revealed, and it's just, what do you say? Our country is a joke. This democratic process, this quote-unquote democratic process, isn't very democratic. It's not very transparent. And the fact that nobody has resigned, that there's been no accountability, goes to show you that the Democratic Party doesn't take the democratic process serious. You know, they condemn, uh, you know, the Republican Party's attempts to suppress voter turnout with voter ID laws and restricting the number of polling stations and whatnot in states like Arizona. But I mean, look at this. If you guys can't get it right, then you have no room to talk. The Republican Party in Iowa managed to do a caucus and release the results right after. Why can't you do the same? We're literally just asking you to count the votes, the bare minimum that we should expect from a state party, and we can't even get that. Unreal? But, um, I... Uh, I'm not too surprised. As the plot thickens, it gets a lot more interesting, we'll say. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that for now. After the Iowa debacle, voters, myself included, are incredibly terrified that we will have a repeat with the Nevada caucus as it quickly approaches. And unfortunately, the Nevada State Democratic Party isn't really giving us assurance that 
there won't be any type of shenanigans. Because it's not just the errors and the incompetence that made Iowa the disaster that it was, but there was also the brazen conflicts of interest. I mean, the company, Shadow, which was used to tally the results of the Iowa caucuses, got two different payments of more than $20,000 from the Buttigieg campaign. The parent company of Shadow, Acronym, their CEO, likes Pete Buttigieg, is a Pete Buttigieg supporter, and on top of that, her husband is a senior advisor to the Pete Buttigieg campaign. So there's this conflict of interest that wasn't addressed, and going into Nevada, they should be going above and beyond to assure us that we can trust this vote, because, I mean, if you want to have a democracy, voters have to believe that the process is legitimate and fair. But Nevada isn't doing this, and they're not doing that because we just discovered that there is more conflicts of interest that maybe we should be worried about. Because as journalist Samuel Finkelstein pointed out on Twitter, the Nevada Democratic Party just hired a paid Buttigieg organizer to be their voter protection director. Now, as you can see here, her name is Emily Goldman, and she worked for Peace Campaign between October of 2019 and February 2020. But as of this month, she went on to work for the Nevada Democratic Party as, <laughs> once again, a quote-unquote voter protection director. Now, after this was all discovered, you know, Samuel explains that she locked her Twitter account immediately so we can't go through her old tweets. She scrubbed her employment history from LinkedIn, and he writes, for posterity, her position as voter protection director still shows up with the Google search. Feel free to check it out yourself. Now, here's the thing. After we just saw the connection between Buttigieg's campaign and the Iowa app that made this entire process a joke, they should be going out of their way to assure us that we can be confident that whatever result is produced is fair. But when you have this conflict of interest, I mean, even if we're not putting on our tinfoil hats and claiming that there's this conspiracy to take down Bernie Sanders and rig the election in favor of Pete Buttigieg, the optics alone should give them pause and think, you know what, maybe at this point in time we shouldn't hire a Buttigieg staffer after they kind of have a bad rap right now, but I mean, they are just brazen. So you have this revolving door between the Buttigieg campaign and Democratic Party, but it goes both ways because someone who worked for the Nevada Democratic Party started working for Pete Buttigieg as of August. Because as Beth Lynch points out on Twitter, the former executive director of Nevada State Democratic Party, Travis Brock, is now the national caucus director for Pete Buttigieg's campaign. Now, even though he's been with the Buttigieg campaign for a while, Obviously, this is still a conflict of interest. So, I mean, at a bare minimum, they should at least make sure that the optics are good going into Nevada. But, I mean, can anybody trust this process? I am incredibly skeptical about this process. And I just, I, I'm honestly shocked that they're this brazen, right? Like, I am not alleging that they're trying to uh, impose people in uh, or insert people from the Buttigieg campaign in the Nevada State Party to steal it, because if they truly wanted to steal the election, they don't necessarily have to do that, right? But I mean, it's just a matter of the optics. The optics are absolutely terrible. Like, if I, the Humanist Report, I, I hired someone from the blaze, wouldn't that be bad optics? Even if he was saying everything that I wanted him to say with regard to progressive politics, just the mere fact that this person came from the blaze, isn't that a little bit skeptical? Wouldn't that communicate to my viewers that maybe this person have has some underlying biases and shouldn't be trusted or at a minimum i should question what this person says so i mean these are things that normal americans normal people think about but the nevada state democratic party they don't even care they just saw the iowa debacle and now they're saying you know what those people on Buttigieg's campaign 
bring them in. We need their help because they seem like competent people. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Now, there was, there was a lot of outcry, obviously, when this was discovered, and a lot of people CC'd the Sanders campaign on Twitter to let them know that this is a little bit sketch. And Sanders campaign manager Faz Shakir responded saying, appreciate the concerns here. We've spoken with the Nevada party, which has assured us that this individual does not have decision-making authority over the caucus count. Please know we are working hard with the party to get every assurance that mistakes of Iowa are not repeated. Now, I'm glad that they're at least aware of the situation at a minimum, but with what just happened in Iowa, we can't take any chances. So if I were the Sanders campaign, if I'm part of the Warren campaign, the Biden campaign, the Klobuchar campaign, I'm calling on the Nevada State Democratic Party to sever their ties with Emily Goldman. Because this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. But yet, nothing will probably be done. And let me just ask you this, just as a viewer, ask yourself this. Are you confident that Nevada won't be a complete and utter shit show? Because, you know, as soon as we learned that the app was part of the main reason why Iowa turned into the dumpster fire that it was, they announced we're not going to be using that app after all. Although we're learning that, you know, instead of using an app, they'll be using a quote, iPad based caucus tool, otherwise known as an app. Oh, and according to that same article, they are still trying to figure out what to do in the Iowa caucus aftermath. So that's reassuring. Listen, as I said last week, the bare minimum that voters expect from the state Democratic parties and the National Democratic Party apparatus, the DNC, is just for them to count the votes and tell us what the numbers are. But we don't even have confidence that that's going to be the case, right? Like, I am absolutely anticipating another disaster in Nevada. I'm expecting the worst, hoping for the best. But when we have the same types of people going in and out of campaigns and into the Democratic Party and state parties and whatnot, it's this revolving door with the same incompetent people that keep messing up, and yet nothing is being done here. And even though the optics are horrible... It is what it is. We just have to accept it. So I don't really know what to say at this point. Whatever I find out, it's not even surprising. But we'll get to another video where I'll look back to 2016 to tell you why I am so afraid of the Nevada results. Because the Nevada State Democratic Party has had it out for Bernie Sanders since 2016. And if we uh, learned anything... It's that we cannot trust the Democratic Party, be it the National Party or state parties, because they really are working against the grassroots. And it's to the point where I am 100% convinced that they would rather have Donald Trump as president than Bernie Sanders. Because, I mean, think about this. Donald Trump allows them to fundraise, right? They can sit back while he's president, throw their hands up and say, well, I wish that he, you know, signed all of our bills that we passed into law, but, you know, we can't do anything right now. So in other words, they get to sit on their asses and fundraise off of Donald Trump. But if Bernie Sanders were president, things would be different. They'd have to act. They'd have to vote on policies and expose, you know, to voters what their true ideological leanings are, right? They'd have to show their cards. And they don't want to do that, which is why, like, everything that... I'm seeing tells me that a lot of Democrats, not all of them, but a lot of them who are associated with the Democratic Party in an official way, 
they're more comfortable with a Trump presidency than Bernie Sanders. Now, with that in mind, what we have to do as Sanders supporters is be extra vigilant, make sure that, uh, one, we overwhelm you know, the, these polls, we show up and we vote like hell. And on top of that, we make sure we get out more people than we originally anticipated we need. Because if we want to win, as Kyle Kalinske says, we have to overperform. We can't just win by one or two measly points. We have to win by five to 10 points. So that way, if there is any fuckery or shenanigans, we have a little bit of a cushion, right? So, you know, that's all I can do is I can give you this information and you do it with it what you will. And of course, you know, people want to attack me as being a conspiracy theorist, but I'm just telling you that the optics here are bad. I'm not asserting that, you know, this is evidence that there's this conspiracy to take down Bernie Sanders in Nevada. But what I am telling you is that the optics are horrible and I don't trust the Nevada State Democratic Party. And even if they may not be acting in bad faith against Bernie Sanders, I am not confident that they are competent enough to just give us a basic caucus where we get the results after it's done. But we'll wait and see. I would be absolutely thrilled if I'm proven wrong here, but I'm not expecting that. I'm expecting them to bungle this in, in some way, um, but we'll just have to wait and see. So the Nevada caucus is quickly approaching, and we're already seeing signs that we cannot trust the Nevada State Democratic Party. Now, maybe they just are completely oblivious and don't care about the optics, but for those of you who missed it, they just hired a Pete Buttigieg organizer as the voter protection director. Her name is Emily Goldman, and they assure us that she's not going to have anything to do with the upcoming caucus. She's going to be working on the general election stuff. Um, regardless, we have to have all the information that we possibly can attain. And I think part of that, doing our research and being vigilant is looking back to the history of how these parties have treated progressives. And back in 2016, if you'll recall, the Nevada State uh, Party Convention was one of the dirtiest things I have ever seen, possibly um, in the modern history of electoral politics in the United States. They absolutely, positively had nothing but contempt for Sanders supporters, and they wore it on their sleeves and weren't even uh, embarrassed at all. And, you know, the reason why they were bolstered is because they had the media backing them up. So as we head into Nevada, we have to do what we can to be hypervigilant and protect ourselves against any shenanigans. Now, I don't know what that means. Maybe that means we take extra notes. Maybe that means we screen cap everything and we keep a record, a paper trail. I don't know what that means, but you need to know this information. You need to remember what happened back in 2016 so that way we can anticipate what will happen to us in 2020. So the Nevada State Democratic Party does not like Bernie Sanders and his supporters. So, you know, if this... Uh, this new hire of Emily Goldman has you skeptical if the optics don't look good. Watch this video that I put out from 2016 where I talked about this at length about what they did to brazenly screw over Bernie Sanders supporters. All hell broke loose at last Saturday's Nevada Democratic Convention. Lots of shenanigans went on. Effectively, the process was rigged to benefit Hillary Clinton, uh, and there are many examples as to why this is the case. So first and foremost, more than 50 Bernie Sanders delegates were just denied delegate status for arbitrary reasons. Uh, another example is they held vocal votes, uh, and regardless of what people chose, the DNC chair in Nevada, Roberta Lang, unilaterally decided to implement the rules of her choice. And when Bernie Sanders supporters were really aggravated at this and were yelling and whatnot, well, they brought in armed guards to get them to settle down and whatnot. Because who would have thought that they would be frustrated with the rules, right? So anyways, to give you guys an example of just part of the shenanigans that went on, so here's a video of them doing a vocal vote for yay or nay, 
and clearly the nays have it. But Roberta Lang, she told everyone that her ruling was not debatable and cannot be challenged. Take a look. Now, to make matters even worse, after this happened, Senator Barbara Boxer came in from California, and she was really condescending to Bernie Sanders supporters, and she began to antagonize them. Take a look. Now, when you boo me, you're booing Bernie Sanders. Go ahead. You're booing Bernie Sanders. Let's hear it for Hillary Clinton. All right. We have the vote. We have the voice. We have victory. And now after that, she continued to be antagonistic because as she was leaving, she was blowing kisses to the crowd in a really sarcastic, condescending way. And then after that, she went on MSNBC and talked about how she was so afraid for her life when she was sitting there antagonizing the crowd. I did fear for my safety, and I fortunately had a lot of security around me. So this is what our democracy has come to. Now look, I'm only giving you a small snapshot as to what happened. I'll put full stories to what happened in the description box, but what I actually want to talk about about is the aftermath because effectively what we saw was that the process was rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton. This isn't the first time this happened this election cycle. The Democratic establishment has overwhelmingly been in the tank for Hillary Clinton since the beginning. We've seen this time and again with DNC chair Debbie do anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz and now we see it with Roberta do anything for Hillary Lang. So it's really frustrating that they have the gall to do this and then get angry and bring in armed guards when people get upset that they're rigging the process in front of their very eyes and don't like it when they are antagonized. But the shenanigans that ensued after this may be more outrageous than what happened at the convention. So is it the case that the Democratic establishment are sorry and are being apologetic for what they did at the convention? Well, they're actually blaming Bernie Sanders supporters and are claiming that they were violent at the convention. Uh, and also, they're focusing on what Bernie Sanders supporters did to the DNC chair afterwards. So, the official complaint that the Nevada State Democratic Party filed to the DNC after they rigged the convention is as follows. We write to alert you to what we perceive as the Sanders campaign's penchant for extra-parliamentary behavior. Indeed, actual violence in place of democratic conduct in a convention setting. And furthermore, what we can only describe as their encouragement of and complicity in a very dangerous atmosphere that ended in chaos and physical threats to fellow Democrats. Indeed, the threats to the chair of the Nevada State Democratic Party are ongoing at time of this writing. 
as Sanders activists have posted her cell phone and home address online and have bombarded her with threats to her life and the safety of her family, the situation had reached a point where public safety could no longer be assured and that the proceedings had to be concluded in very short order, hence the reason why they decided to bring in armed guards. Now I'll put the rest of the complaint also in the description box, uh, and essentially what they're saying is that Bernie Sanders supporters are violent, they were being violent, they resorted to violence, uh, they claimed that there were chairs that were thrown and whatnot, uh, and they're just overwhelmingly focusing on Bernie Sanders supporters, they're not taking into account the fact that they rigged the process and that they caused some of this outrage. Not at all. So now the media, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is claiming that chairs were thrown, for example. That's one of the acts of violence that went on. But unfortunately for them, there is zero evidence of this. There is one video of a guy picking up a chair, but he puts it back down and then he hugs someone. Uh, so that's bogus. And even Snopes debunked this. It's fake. But yet the DNC chair, as well as the Nevada State Democratic Party, keep perpetuating this myth because they want Bernie Sanders supporters to look bad. They want them to look violent. They want you to look away at what they did and focus on what Bernie Sanders supporters did. Now, of course, the media is having a field day with this. Here's a taste of what they've been saying. People wave signs, they boo, they yell. Chairs being flipped, no, first of all, the show me, the no, show me one. Saying that show she's me, being threatened. What, hold on, let, let, let's separate the two things. Since Barbara Boxer said she feared for her life. Shouting. It's not nothing. You can't Wait a tell minute. Barbara Boxer that she, when Barbara Boxer, it, who is a lioness in the Senate, uh, says she feels threatened, that's okay? So, no. Uh, Sally, I'm going to begin you. with you because I know that you've been an, an avid Bernie Sanders supporter since the beginning, but we've now got a grandmother who is worried about her five-year-old grandchild. Uh, we've got a woman who says her marriage might be on the brink because of Bernie Sanders supporters. We have a U.S. senator who just said on live national television that she feared for her life at a Democratic convention. Where is this going, Sally? Well, okay, first, let me let me just say one thing I think it's important to say, which is I know we in the media often love sort of drama and false equivalencies, and in, in no way, shape, or form is this akin to what's happening in the Republican Party. There you have leading Answer figures. Answer the question. I don't want to talk about the okay, Republicans. No, I want to say, I want, I'm going to the Republicans in about 10 minutes, but right, I need 10 but full I minutes to get down on this mess. It is ugly. It is foul. Okay, wait, wait. Someone who All is I fearing for her life. Yes. Where is this going? Now, there is evidence that someone did dox DNC Chair Nevada, Roberta Lang's information, her home address, her cell phone, and she has received really threatening voicemails and really odd text messages. Here's some examples. So someone texted her and said, hey, bitch, we know where you live, where you work, where your kids eat, where your kids go to school and grandkids. And another person called her the biggest cunt in politics next to Clinton. And she was also texted pictures of a guillotine. This is really just troubling. And it goes without saying, I wholeheartedly condemn violence. I never, ever condone violence. I'm in favor of nonviolent protest. I'm in favor of actually using constructive means to accomplish political objectives. So if you are someone who did participate in this, then you're being counterproductive. This is wrong. Please don't do this. You don't have to do this. We can win on the merit of our argument. So the wrongness of what they did and the harassment that she's received is immoral. But that doesn't mean that she's not also guilty for doing what she did at the Nevada State Convention. Now, here's the thing about this. If you are receiving all these death threats and whatnot, please do not post them online. Report them to the Nevada police. And I'm guessing what they would instruct you to do is to stay inside your house. Uh, don't send them online because when you 
publicize this, then you make matters worse. And furthermore, part of me wants to pull out my tinfoil hat and question the validity of this based on her actions. Because if you're really afraid for your life, and look, I'm not going to say challenge her, but if you are, then you don't want to publicize this. You, you want to make sure that you stay out of the spotlight for a few days. You want to report everything that you see to the police. But if she's releasing them online, then there's evidence that she didn't report them to the police because they probably wouldn't allow her to release this. And furthermore, we know about how David Brock is paying $1 million for Clinton trolls to uh, correct the record on Bernie Sanders. So who knows if this is something orchestrated by them. But regardless if this is true or false, again, let me just state that I never condone violence. I'm a humanist. I believe that even these threats, if they're baseless, just the psychological impact that they have, it's wrong and you should never do it. Okay, you can try to challenge Roberta Lang's legitimacy through legal means. You can try to challenge her and sign petitions and get her to step down. But if you send her threats, then that's just wrong. And I wholeheartedly condemn violence, as does Bernie Sanders. In fact, he stated, I condemned any and all forms of violence, including the personal harassment of individuals. Now, in spite of this condemnation, Roberta Lang is still demanding an apology from Bernie Sanders. Take a look. Not only were people talking when we were trying to run the convention and yelling and rushing the stage and throwing chairs and um, yelling for my death in the crowd. Those are the kinds of things that have to be stopped in. Uh, what should you know, he say? How I've can he stop that? I've not received an apology. I, uh, uh, you know, I I've not received anything from the Sanders campaign. I haven't seen anything that said that this should stop. So it's clear, Roberta Lang is against violence, as she should be, as any rational human being should be. Uh, but when asked about whether or not she had anything to say about the violence that Bernie Sanders' campaign had dealt with, so for example, there were gunshots fired into his campaign office, in Nevada, and some of his staffers' uh, houses were ransacked. Uh, she had nothing to say about this. She didn't know what to say. Um, you are the state Democratic chairwoman, and if this happened at a campaign headquarters in your state, I would assume that there would be some uh, curiosity or concern enough to at least have someone in the office call. Well, you know, look, um, it happened at 10 o'clock last night. It's Our office isn't open yet. I haven't had any opportunity to um, take any steps forward. Look, I am concerned. I am concerned not only for my safety and what has happened to me, but for the safety of everyone involved. So here's the thing about responsibility. Is it the case that Bernie Sanders is responsible for condemning the actions of his supporters? Absolutely. Has he done that? Yes, he has. Does he need to apologize for the actions of his supporters? No, because his movement is very broad. He can't control the actions of his supporters. And if you claim that he does owe Roberta Lang an apology for actions that he can't control, well then, you're being incredibly unreasonable. Let me tell you why. So if that were the case, if Bernie Sanders is supposed to apologize to Roberta Lang for the actions of his supporters, I want an apology from Hillary Clinton because I've been tweeted to, I've been called homophobic slurs, is Hillary Clinton going to apologize to me? I also would like an apology from Donald Trump because one of his supporters told me that I should be deported to Mexico. I'm not Mexican, <laughs> so you can't deport me to Mexico. But I mean, nonetheless, it's xenophobic, right? I'd like an apology. So the point I'm trying to make is that if you're going to demand an apology from a candidate for the actions of their supporters, then they're not going to have much time to campaign because they're going to be here all day because every single candidate has a proportion of their supporters that are just immoral, that are assholes. Okay, and Bernie Sanders is no different. But what counts is that he condemned the violence. That's what you have to do. You can't encourage it like Donald Trump 
where he said, I'll give you money or I'll pay your legal fees, fees if you punch that guy. That's wrong. Bernie Sanders didn't do that. He took responsibility for the actions of his supporters and condemned any violence and harassment. I don't know what more you want. It just proves evidence of the fact that you may be using this as an opportunity to further vilify Bernie Sanders. Just like you're the victim of online harassment, Roberta, Bernie Sanders supporters are also victims. They're victims of a political system that favors the billionaire class. They're victims of political violence against them. We're victims of an oligarchic state where only special interests get to dictate policy outcomes and our voices have a statistically non-significant impact on policy. That's from a study from Princeton University by Dr. Gillens and Page that found that only the business class, only the billionaire class, actually have a say when it comes to policies that are passed. That's wrong. The political system victimizes people every single day. So what you did, Roberta Lang, is further perpetuate the victimization of the working poor class. You made our, quote, democratic process even more undemocratic than it already is, just so that way you can help Hillary Clinton get a couple extra delegates so that way she can get in office and do the bidding of her rich billionaire donors. That's wrong. You're guilty too. Take responsibility for it. Now, I'm not saying that you deserve to be threatened for what you did. Nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves to have their information doxxed and to be threatened and to have their family threatened, okay? That's wrong. That's immoral. I condemn that. But you're also guilty. You cheated. You are a cheater. You cheated for Hillary Clinton when you didn't even have to. She could technically lose all the remaining states left by a certain margin and still become the nominee. So since the Iowa debacle, there's been a number of politicians and very high-profile people, even individuals running for president like Tulsi Gabbard, um, Congresswoman Marcia Fudge, call on DNC Chair Tom Perez to resign. And as calls for him to resign grow louder, well, he's going to have to respond to those calls for his resignation. Now, in an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN, he was asked whether or not he would be willing to resign or was thinking about it, and he was uh, defiant. He said unequivocally, no. So you know this is some Democrats are calling for your resignation. Former Congressional Black Caucus Chair Congresswoman Marsha Fudge said, quote, we're a party in chaos. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar said Tom Perez should be held accountable for this failure. Have you considered resigning? Absolutely not. Jake, look at the last three years. My job when I came in was to rebuild our infrastructure, to win elections. And when you do that, sometimes you got to make tough decisions. Our superdelegate reform. Uh, I have great respect for Congresswoman Fudge. She doesn't support it. I get that, and I respect that, but I categorically disagree with her on this. We have been winning. This is what it's about. I think it's really important for people to take a, a broader step back right now. Uh, you know, this is the most unsettling phase of the cycle. Mm -hmm. you know, in 1991, George Herbert Walker Bush's approval ratings were, were sky high. Uh, people were saying there's nobody in the Democratic Party field who can win, and there was a lot of understandable angst. We're in a similar position now in the sense that uh, I don't know who the nominee is going to be. We're, right. we're barely out of the starting gate. And the angst is uh, elevated because we have the most dangerous president in American history. But here's the good news. Yeah. We've been winning elections in 2017, 2018, 2019. Right. We are better positioned to hand our nominee an infrastructure for success than ever before. Yeah, so there you have it. Absolutely not. Now, let me remind you that this isn't the first time that there have been calls for Tom Perez to resign. Back in 2018, during the New York gubernatorial primary, when Andrew Cuomo had a primary challenger, Cynthia Nixon, he endorsed Andrew Cuomo. 
which violates the DNC charter. The DNC chair is supposed to remain neutral. That's why Debbie Wasserman Schultz had to resign in 2016. So there were calls for him to resign because going into 2020, we had to make sure that we had a DNC chair that was impartial. He never resigned, and now we have this Iowa debacle, and he still won't resign, even though there are very loud calls for him to do so by someone who's running for president. Now, am I under the delusion that if he were to resign, there'd be someone more competent to replace him? Of course not. But the point is that when things go wrong and there is either incompetence or malfeasance, doesn't matter which, there's accountability. And we haven't had resignations from the Iowa Democratic Party. We haven't had resignations from the DNC. So the question is, when are we going to see some accountability for what happened? Will the DNC be suing the makers of the Shadow app? Will anyone from within the DNC or anyone associated with the Iowa Democratic Caucus debacle be forced out? See, that's the thing. That's why voters don't trust the process, because things like this go wrong and nothing happens. At a minimum, they leave, you know, the Iowa party and probably go on to work for some campaign or be a consultant. Like, it's this revolving door of corruption in DNC, in, in the Democratic Party, in the DNC. And this is why people uh, become black-pilled and stay home, because they don't trust the process. It's thoroughly delegitimized because of the Democratic Party's own actions, and we get no one who wants to, you know, be accountable. Now, Tom Perez, he was trying to uh, legitimize himself by basically saying, well, you know, Marcia Fudge, she's calling on me to resign, but she's also against my superdelegate reform. Now, he's trying to cultivate sympathy with Sanders supporters, so that way he could suggest, look, I support superdelegate reform, right? And Marcia Fudge doesn't, so are you going to listen to her or me? Well, she can be right and wrong about different things. She's wrong about the superdelegate reform, and that's actually embarrassing of her to be that wrong, but she's right about you needing to resign, because the point is, when things go wrong, again, we need to see some type of accountability. The fact that we've seen zero accountability thus far, the fact that you're not even seemingly trying to put pressure on the IDP uh, chair, Troy Price, to resign, I mean... <laughs> When are we going to see any action? Any action whatsoever? We saw zero accountability in 2016 after the DNC rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. It wasn't until WikiLeaks exposed that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, beyond a shadow of a doubt, even if it was already obvious, was working to sabotage Sanders that she had to resign. But I mean, Tom Perez is someone who was also implicated in those WikiLeaks emails. He was talking about shiving Bernie Sanders, creating this narrative that, well, yeah, you know, he has support from young people, but after Nevada, we'll have this narrative that he doesn't have support with uh, black voters and whatnot. So, I mean, this is someone who coordinated with the last group of ghouls that rigged it against Bernie, and he's still here. So, I mean, do you, do you understand why people feel so frustrated with the process? Like, this is why so many people feel demoralized and they don't even want to participate because to participate in and of itself, in their view, is to legitimize the process and they don't want to do that. And like for all the Democrats who are asking Sanders supporters whether or not they're going to vote blue no matter who, that's the least of your concerns right now. Like what the Democratic Party doesn't realize is that they may lose two generations, millennials and Zoomers, because of their behavior in 2016 and now 2020. Like, if Zoomers and Millennials get so demoralized that they stay home, I mean, the Democratic Party will be obliterated. So, they should be encouraging them to get out and vote no matter what. 
doesn't matter who you're voting for if you're young. The Green Party, if you write in your dog, as long as you are participating in this process, we welcome and encourage that. But as millennials see their candidate get fucked over in real time, all they're concerned with is that they're going to fall in line and vote blue no matter who. Don't be concerned with who they're going to vote for. Be concerned that they're going to vote because you are discouraging them. You are blackpilling not one, but two generations. And this is deeply dangerous. Like, this is bad for democracy. The Democratic Party as an institution could collapse because of all of this. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, be chicken little and say that the sky is falling, but you've got to understand voter apathy is already an issue. And if you do this again and there's no accountability, do you understand what that's going to do to demoralize generations? Like all of my nephews and nieces who are Zoomers, if they're politically engaged at all, they support Bernie Sanders. So... I've done everything I possibly can to convince people to participate in this process. And I think a lot of people who are responsible are trying to bring more people into the political process, get them engaged in politics, get them to register to vote and participate. But when things like this happen and when there's no accountability, you just make it so difficult. And the Democratic Party should really be the ones uh, motivating people to participate. But when things like this happen, when the same incompetent people are shuffled from one state party to a candidate's campaign and back and forth, the whole process just becomes delegitimized and young people get discouraged. So I really hope that at the end of the day, we see some better, more competent results. And I'm not saying like specific results for any one candidate. Like I'm just saying win or lose, we need to be able to trust the results and we need to see some fucking accountability, some type of accountability, a resignation, something. But the fact that we can't even get that shows that the Democratic Party is just, they are painfully out of touch. And the only hope that they're going to change directions is if Bernie Sanders actually wins the nominee above all and cleans house, fires everyone, or at least does mass evaluations, and sees who should and shouldn't remain. I know there are some people in the DNC currently who are working to make it more transparent and make it better, but overall, the vast majority is just hopelessly incompetent and not trustworthy, and let's hope Bernie wins. They should hope Bernie wins. Otherwise, they're going to lose out on not just one, but two generations if they keep this up. So as billionaire Mike Bloomberg floods networks with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of television advertisements, he is actually starting to see some results and he's surging. He's rising in the polls and he had this risky strategy to skip the first early primary states. He's banking on, you know, Super Tuesday, delegate rich states like Texas and California. And, you know, who knows if that's going to be successful. But one thing that is a little bit alarming is that as Joe Biden's campaign continues to um, be on the decline, a lot of moderates are looking to him as basically the individual who can unite the moderate wing of the Democratic Party to ultimately take on Bernie Sanders. And, you know, there's some merit to that claim because Mike Bloomberg is an individual with a virtually unlimited amount of campaign funds. He has more than enough to make it to a general without raising a dollar from anyone in America. And on top of that, if it really seems like Bernie Sanders is going to run away with it, then, you know, I'm assuming a lot of moderates will try to unite around one candidate 
in order to consolidate the vote. And that person who's going to stick around who might be able to do that is Mike Bloomberg. So Mike Bloomberg is a threat. We don't want to underestimate him. However, with that being said, Mike Bloomberg has not been thoroughly vetted by leftists online yet. And um, the reason why I am feeling confident about our chances against Bloomberg is, first of all, Bernie is going to just annihilate him. Running against a billionaire is perfect for Bernie Sanders' narrative. I saw someone explain this online, and I wish I could credit them, but they basically said, like, Mike Bloomberg is proving in real time why Bernie Sanders' theory of how broken American politics is, um, is. <laughs> Like, Americans get to see it. Like, Bernie will be proven in real time with Mike Bloomberg's rise. So, like, do you understand? We're going to annihilate him. And here's the thing about Mike Bloomberg's record. It's abysmal. And as horrible as Joe Biden's record is, Joe Biden looks like an angel in comparison with Mike Bloomberg. Because if you'll recall, Mike Bloomberg is the former mayor of New York City who implemented the notoriously racist stop-and-frisk policy. And... Any policy analyst, even if you're not necessarily, you know, an expert in public policy, you could have predicted that this would end up leading to racial profiling. And that is exactly what happened. Now, Mike Bloomberg has a lot of skeletons in his closet, and those skeletons are coming out more and more as his numbers rise in the polls. So last week, we learned that he made just brazenly transphobic remarks. And, you know, you'd think that after Bernie Sanders, Joe Rogan, controversy that they'd be condemning this universally but they're not instead they're trying to help mike bloomberg the dnc changed their rules to allow him to participate in debates and on top of that he has surrogates from his campaign sitting on the dnc rules committee for the national convention so they love mike bloomberg but it's going to be more and more difficult for them to not denounce him not just not support him but denounce him because this is going to be something that could destroy the party if they fully embrace him like they t seem to be doing now. Um, so Benjamin Dixon, friend of the show, he also has a podcast that you should absolutely subscribe to. It's on Spreaker. He talks about how Mike Bloomberg spoke at the Aspen Institute in 2015 and he blocked the footage of that for whatever reason. He didn't want us to see what he said. Except Benjamin Dixon has that footage, he released it, and it's incredibly apparent why Mike Bloomberg didn't want that footage to get out. It's because it reveals that he is overtly racist. Take a look. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to, if you want to spend the money for a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in the minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes. That's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want I don't even need to comment. That audio clip speaks for itself. And once again, kudos to Ben Dixon 
for sharing this. Um, I'm going to link you in the description box to the full audio podcast that Ben recorded. I would highly encourage you to listen to that, but I'll also put a link in the description box to a thread where uh, Ben Dixon actually talks about Mike Bloomberg's record at length. And on top of that, there are stories from 2016 where New York Daily News reports that an NYPD officer was punished for not stopping enough Hispanic teens in subways. So Mike Bloomberg can't feign ignorance here. He can't say, well, look, I wasn't aware that stop and frisk would lead to, you know, increased racial profiling. He knew that that was what would happen. And that was the goal. That was the point. Listen to what he said here. We over-police black communities because that's where all the crime is, according to him. And his Republicanism is showing. Like, if you didn't know, Mike Bloomberg is a former Republican, then an Independent, and now he is a Democrat. He literally spoke at the 2004 Republican National Convention. He endorsed George W. Bush after he invaded Iraq. Yeah. So his record is not good, to say the least. And his approach to crime is very Republican-y, if we want to be charitable. So rather than looking at socioeconomic factors, rather than looking at poverty, he just says, look, we have to over-police black communities because they commit the most crime. Like, to say that this is racist would be a gross oversimplification. This is the type of thing that helps perpetuate racism, right? This is why, like, this kind of thinking is why institutions in the United States have racism just ingrained so deeply. It's because of shit like this, this type of fucking antiquated, ignorant thinking. And this guy wants to be the president. He wants to be president after he said this. No, because look, let's, let's say hypothetically speaking, indulge me for a moment. He were able to buy the nomination. Do you honestly believe you are going to be able to beat Donald Trump? I know that moderates and, you know, the talking heads on MSNBC and CNN think that, that he will be able to beat Donald Trump because, you know, if you run a moderate, then conventional wisdom tells you that you can win over those purple states. No. Every single election is about turnout. And if you are running someone who's functionally a Republican, who's most left, if you want to even call it that, I'd say most liberal policy was to ban big gulps. If you honestly think that that's going to be conducive to a victory for Democrats, you are horribly mistaken because Democrats lose when turnout is low. Ask yourself this, who's turning out for Mike Bloomberg? Who's turning out for a billionaire who is literally trying to buy his way into the White House? At this point, like if we see a billionaire versus a billionaire both buy their way to their respective party's nomination, like this is going to sh destroy people's trust in American democracy. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. If Democrats run Bloomberg, they deserve to lose. They deserve to lose. Because you can't be that fucking dumb. Moderates can't be that thirsty to defeat Bernie Sanders that they're willing to nominate a racist and a transphobe after scolding everyone on the left for supposedly not being woke enough. After scolding Bernie Sanders for daring to speak to Joe Rogan. You're going to nominate this guy? No, no, not at all. Because there has to be at least a modicum of that facade left, like that facade that moderates care about, you know, uh, social issues. And if they end up going with someone like Mike Bloomberg, 
then that entire veneer is destroyed. They're revealing that they don't give a shit about social issues and racism and trans rights. They just care about beating Bernie Sanders, protecting, you know, their own wealth, making sure that, you know, Bernie can't raise their taxes is what they care about. So they can't be stupid enough to show their cards like that, right? Probably not, but <laughs> it's entirely possible. I mean, the Democratic Party is so painfully stupid and out of touch that I wouldn't be surprised to see individuals, you know, within the Democratic Party establishment, sitting senators, just like openly endorse Mike Bloomberg if they think that's going to stop Bernie Sanders' momentum. But look, if you guys want a show, if you want to see like Bloomberg versus Bernie Sanders, bring it the fuck on, because guess what? We are going to absolutely pummel him for his horrific record. And then Bernie's going to be the nominee. And we're going to crush Trump. So um, we have a reason to be confident here. It's because his record is so poor that if he goes on to win the Democratic Party as an institution, I mean, I don't know how it can survive past that. It's an embarrassment. It's a national embarrassment. But, um, you know, we'll see. But Mike Bloomberg... Not somebody you should be throwing your weight behind if you truly care about social issues and you are committed to ending institutional racism and ending transphobia. Not someone to support. If you're serious, you support someone with a lifetime of advocacy for social justice. But not just social justice, economic justice, criminal justice, equality for all. So if you truly want us to believe that you're not just full-blown Republicans at this point, prove it. Support Bernie Sanders. Hey, guess what? Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire. He won New Hampshire, and I'm honestly a little bit surprised that I'm able to tell you that he won New Hampshire because I'm still a little bit traumatized after Iowa. Like, I was honestly skeptical that we'd even see the results tonight, but we got the results, and Bernie won. Um, it wasn't by a wide margin. It was relatively close, with Pete Buttigieg coming in a close second. I wanted there to be a little bit of space between him and Pete. Nonetheless, he won, and I'll take it. So as I record this video, we don't have 100% of precincts reporting, but with 85.86 in at the time that I record this video, Bernie Sanders is in first place with 25.92% of the vote. That's 68,545 votes. Pete Buttigieg comes in second place with 24.09%. That's more than 63,000 votes, almost 64,000. And then surprisingly, in third place, Amy Klobuchar has 19.91% of the vote with more than 50,000 votes. Now, interestingly enough, Elizabeth Warren came in a distant fourth place with 9.29%. And Joe Biden came in a devastating fifth place with 8.66%. I mean, Amy Klobuchar doubled what Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden have. So we'll talk about the implications of the results and where everyone stands and how I think that the field will shape up. But let me just tell you this, donate to Bernie Sanders. Pause the video, go donate to Bernie Sanders, and then come back and let me know how much you donated. Just in the comment section. I want to know, and I will go through and try to heart every single comment if you did, in fact, donate. Because look, 
the media is going to deny Bernie Sanders the victory narrative. We saw before any votes came in that MSNBC hosts were basically saying, well, you know, it's not a big deal if Bernie Sanders is able to win because back in 2016, he won by a much larger margin. So now he's getting a lot less of a margin. Except that's obviously stupid because that was a two-person race. This is a nine-person race. So, I mean, <laughs> the fact that we have to explain that, it, it's not that we do have to explain it. It's that these are hacks and they want to deny Bernie Sanders a narrative. And according to the people at MSNBC, in the event Amy Klobuchar came in third, which she did, they wanted to make it seem as if that's the bigger story. So let me share a tweet from New York Times reporter Trip Gabriel. I honestly don't know if he's being serious. I think he is. But this is what he says with regard to the media narrative. Number one story of the night is Amy Klobuchar. Number two story of the night so far is Pete Buttigieg coming closer to Bernie Sanders than expected. So it doesn't matter that Bernie Sanders won. The narrative will not be that Bernie Sanders won. The narrative will be that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have momentum. Bernie... Not so much. So the reason why it's so important that we donate to Bernie Sanders, because if we can absolutely just drive up his numbers, get him to four, five million possibly, that is going to force the media to realize that he does in fact have momentum. Now that still might not, you know, um, encourage them to cover him. But I remember back in 2016, I can't remember which primary, I think maybe it was after Michigan, we donated like six or seven million to Bernie Sanders after that election and the media did talk about it right so i don't necessarily know if we can generate any type of positive press this way but voters need to know that there's momentum so we make them pay attention by donating in mass to bernie sanders that's what we have to do because that's that's our only choice um now, on top of that, we had several candidates drop out tonight. We'll get to that in a separate video because I want to take some time talking about that at length. But really, it, it is actually, you know, it's a strong performance for Amy Klobuchar. For her to finish in third place, higher than Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, yeah. Um, now, the real story here is Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Joe Biden finished in fifth place. That is absolutely brutal, and I don't think he expected a victory here but he already is in south carolina he is skipping nevada and he went straight to south carolina because that is basically the only hope that he has left if he can win in south carolina then maybe he'll have a little bit of momentum going into super Tuesday. but for him to finish in fourth place in iowa and fifth place in uh, new hampshire Ouch. Now, for Elizabeth Warren, a lot of individuals, I think, rightfully said this was a must-win state for her because this is a neighboring state. I mean, there were times throughout the pro process, I think maybe even in November, that she was in first place by a pretty large margin. And for her to fall to not just fourth place, but a distant fourth, that's pretty brutal. Now, at her speech tonight, she basically gave us an indication that she's not going anywhere. She's not dropping out anytime soon. And she pitched herself as this unity candidate. And at the same time, she attacked Bernie Sanders and kind of attacked his supporters, suggesting that we're attacking other candidates and whatnot. Um, so I, I, I don't know what she's doing. Um, it's, it's honestly shocking that she did this poorly and that Amy Klobuchar was able to best her. And if she truly believed in, you know, uniting to take on a moderate and get progressive change, you know, now's the time. That if I'm Elizabeth Warren and I care more about policy than my own political career, I would consider dropping out. 
Now, this is totally her decision, right? I'm not going to be ruthless and say, drop out now, hack. Um, but I mean, back in, what was it, October? A lot of Elizabeth Warren supporters were basically saying around the time Bernie Sanders had his heart attack that maybe he should consider dropping out and supporting Elizabeth Warren if you truly want a progressive to win. So now, you know, the shoe's on the other foot. And I'm asking you respectfully to consider if you are an Elizabeth Warren supporter, do you truly care about progressive policy change? If you genuinely care about that, then now is the time to back the progressive candidate with the momentum. And that is Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren did not have a strong showing in a state that theoretically she should have done really good in. Like if she came in um, third place, probably wouldn't have been great. Ideally for her, second place would have been good for her. But I mean, fourth place. <sighs> Man, that's that's brutal. But overall, Bernie Sanders is the winner. And my goal was for him to win by about five points. But, you know, um, last week we saw some polls that showed Pete Buttigieg had some real momentum because of that media bump that they gave him after the Iowa debacle. But after that debate, even though I thought that Amy Klobuchar didn't perform very well because she said the same thing that she always said, um, she did eat into Buttigieg's lead, so we kind of have Amy Klobuchar to thank for, you know, uh, pulling back Pete Buttigieg a little bit. Um, and Bernie Sanders, at his uh, victory speech tonight, he said rightfully so, he won Iowa because he got the most votes. So this is a victory. Take this victory, but let's make sure that we do what we can to um, donate to Bernie Sanders, even if you just have a dollar. Make sure that the media has to pay attention to at least the amount of people that donated to him. Even if they don't, let's let's give it a try. But we're on to Nevada. That's not this Saturday, but next Saturday. And I think we have a good shot, but we have to work very, very hard. You know, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, they're going to have a little bit more of a difficult time in Nevada because that is the uh, first state that isn't super, super white. So they're going to really have to perform if they want to, you know, keep up with this momentum. So we have to put in a lot of time. If you are able to get out to Nevada to canvas for Bernie Sanders, take the My Bernie journey. Now is the time to do that. Now is the time to make some calls for Bernie Sanders. Because if we can win the first three primary states, that is phenomenal. I, I was about to say, you know, imagine the media narrative, but... We're going to be denied a media narrative. The only instance where the media is going to say, wow, Bernie's going to win, is when he emerges as the presumptive nominee, if on Super Tuesday he really is able to sweep, and they're just basically crying on MSNBC. Um, and for anyone who tuned in to MSNBC and CNN tonight, the commentary was just bizarre. So I may do a separate video tomorrow just talking about their just absurdity because I think they're kind of losing their minds and they're salty at the fact that Bernie isn't going anywhere. And you see people like Joy Reid uh, supporting an individual like Bloomberg when today we found out that he made very, very racist remarks because he's racist. So, I mean, this, this primary is getting very interesting, albeit stressful. You know, I kind of watched as the numbers came in and I had a little calculator, and I kept calculating the distance between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Not the healthiest thing in hindsight to do mentally, because I really overworked myself into a frenzy every time new numbers came in. Um, so <laughs> just know that we have momentum, regardless if the media recognizes that or not. And, you know, we're a strong movement, and we have a solid chance of taking this entire thing. 
So good job to everyone. Thank you to all of the volunteers who spent time in the freezing cold to canvas for Bernie in New Hampshire. You are the backbone of this movement. Thank you to everyone who, you know, fought past their social anxiety to make calls for Bernie Sanders. And thank you to everyone who's working a nine to five job and still chipped in a dollar when you can't even afford that. You all are amazing. And if you couldn't do that, then just sharing a story about Bernie Sanders, sharing, getting the word out, convincing one friend or family member. You're all part of this movement. This was a collective effort and we pulled it off. Wasn't by, you know, a large margin that I wanted. I wanted a blowout. Nonetheless, this is a victory and I'm going to take it. So as the results rolled in in New Hampshire, we got three major announcements. Three 2020 candidates would be suspending their campaigns. We learned that Michael Bennett would be dropping out of the race. I guess that the uh, James Carville endorsement didn't help him. Shocker. And uh, reportedly, Deval Patrick will announce that he's ending his campaign tomorrow. Now, the biggest one, and the only one that I actually care about and feel sad about, is that Andrew Yang announced that he is suspending his campaign. Now, it was a little bit shocking to me, or a lot shocking, I should say, because like the results only started to roll in. I think we were at like 8 to 10% of precincts reporting in New Hampshire, and he announced that he was ending his campaign. So I think he probably was ready for this and just wanted to see if he would perform well, and he he ended it. And um, out of all of the candidates who I don't support, Andrew Yang is probably the one that I'm the most sympathetic towards because like he was genuine. He was authentic. He was an anti-establishment candidate, and he's just a nice guy. Like, he'll always have a special place in my heart because he's one of the only candidates besides Mike Gravel that actually came on my show. So just for personal narcissistic reasons, that's why, you know, Andrew Yang will always hold a special place in my heart. And even if I disagree with him vehemently on certain policies, he did bring a lot of ideas to the table. You know, drug decriminalization, uh, voting at 16. He brought a lot of policies that I genuinely support. And even though I don't support his implementation of UBI, I think that just the fact that he got us talking about this and automation in and of itself is incredibly valuable. So, you know, what he brought to this campaign, it really was a breath of fresh air. And it was nice to see Andrew Yang back at that debate after hearing from all of these corporate stooges again. It, you know, it just, he really will be missed. And I say this as a Bernie Sanders supporter. Now, I have a message to all of the Yang gang. Now, first and foremost, let me just say that this is a message to you, not as a Bernie supporter, but as a human being, because I know that currently you're probably really irritated because a lot of Bernie supporters are jumping down, jumping down your throats to try to get you to, you know, jump on the Bernie bandwagon. But this is just me saying to you as a human being what I'm going to tell you, because I feel like I've been in a similar situation. And look, I genuinely hope that you jump on board and we can team up and take on the establishment together and that you support Bernie Sanders. But, you know, I've seen kind of split split results here. You know, some people on Twitter say they're going to support Bernie who were Yang supporters. Others say, nope, I'm never supporting Bernie. Um, and I don't really know overall where Yang's base of support will go when it's all said and done because Yang brought a lot of new people into the process. And if those people were never mobilized before, they may just check out without Andrew Yang. So understand that I'm not telling you this to be patronizing, but I just want to, because I care about Andrew Yang as a person and a candidate. I want to explain to you my position because I was in a similar position. All of Bernie's supporters in 2016 were in a similar position where Bernie Sanders dropped out. And like, I don't remember Bernie Sanders officially dropping out. I may be misremembering it, 
but we basically found out that Bernie ended his campaign when he endorsed Hillary Clinton. So it was like a double gut punch, right? He dropped out and endorsed this person who just rigged the process against him. Um, and it hurt really, really bad. So just as human beings, like, I truly, you know, empathize with you because I've been in that predicament before. And a lot of Yang supporters are probably former Bernie supporters. So you may already know, and this is, a you know, two times in a row you're having to deal with this. But if you haven't been there before, as a Bernie supporter, let me just tell you this. I never thought that Bernie Sanders would run for president again. Like, when he was done in 2016, I thought, it's over. Like, we're never going to get a Bernie presidency. And, like, it almost sent me into a depression. Like, I was genuinely depressed for days. And um, it was hard to get out of that. Like, because when you believe in a candidate so much, you kind of stake your hopes and dreams on that individual. So when that candidate's campaign is over... Like, everything that you kind of hoped for and dreamed about just comes crashing down. And there's this, like, giant hole that you don't know how to fill after that, right? So, I, I totally understand where you are. But four years later, Bernie is running again. So, as a Bernie supporter, what I say to the Yang supporters is that, look, Andrew Yang is very young. A lot younger than Bernie Sanders. So, if we get a second chance at Bernie... I can assure you, you will get a second chance at electing Andrew Yang. I, I assure you, he's not going anywhere. He's young, and he built up a movement, and he can harness that in any way he wants to. Will he run again? Possibly. Could he win next time? It's very, very possible. Will he choose to run for the Senate or harness that energy in some other way? Yes. But what I want you to know is that he's not going anywhere, so... Everything that was built by the Yang Gang and with Andrew Yang, that's not just going to perish. It's not just going to dissipate and evaporate into thin air. Like, all of Bernie's support and enthusiasm, it reemerged in 2019 when he announced that he's running again. So, I have no doubt that the same can be true for Andrew Yang. And again, let me stress, I'm not doing this to be patronizing and to try to butter you up to jump on board the Bernie bandwagon. Again, you're welcome. We would love to have you, but I know that realistically speaking, you know, these primaries get dirty and a lot of people just aren't going to support Bernie Sanders. But just from a human perspective, like understand that this isn't over for your candidate and what Andrew Yang managed to accomplish with regard to elevating UBI, that's going to remain in political discourse. I mean, think about this. We were debating a federal jobs guarantee versus universal basic income on a national debate stage. And that's because of Andrew Yang and Bernie Sanders. So both of our candidates kind of, you know, we really influenced the discourse. And Andrew Yang wouldn't have been able to get that far without all of the momentum. Now, again, I disagree with him on a lot of policy positions. However, do I believe that Andrew Yang, unlike a lot of these people like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, genuinely wants to fix America? Yes, I absolutely believe that. And you can't even doubt for a second that his supporters, uh, you know, weren't also committed and authentic and they just genuinely want to fix the country. So I absolutely respect that. Like, contrast that with, with Mayor Pete's supporters. Like, who supports him? Like, do you genuinely believe that there's this urgency to fix America if you're a Pete supporter? I can't imagine it. I, I just can't. A Biden supporter? A Klobuchar supporter? No. I mean, you could say the same for Elizabeth Warren. I think that her supporters actually do want to fix the country, um, even though she's gone down quite a bit in my book, needless to say. But I mean, like, 
Andrew Yang's support base, they genuinely cared. And we disagree with each other, but that's okay. We have a goal to fix America. We just have different ways of implementing solutions. And I am committed to my vision because I, I believe that this is the correct route to take. But you guys have your own and you have the best intentions. And that's what you really have to respect. Like these primaries get super ugly, super, super ugly and toxic sometimes. And, you know, some... There are some instances where you just want to step back and take a little bit of a break because mentally this really takes a toll on you. So um, my message ultimately in closing to the Yang Gang is uh, take time. Like if you need to, don't like look at politics, take a week or so off, play some video games because this shit is tough. Like we're, we're human beings and, you know, during election season, we kind of like try to transform ourselves into machines and we just we go and we go and we go and it's all just automatic like we don't stop to think i'm a human being i need to maybe just take a break and play some basketball or do something walk my dog like we don't take the time for self-care and that is super important um so look nothing but love and solidarity to yang gang i know that not all of them will jump on board the bernie bandwagon and that's fine uh whatever your decision is I respect it. I, I honestly do. And I mean that because like what I saw with Andrew Yang was passion. Like people loved Andrew Yang. And I understand why as someone who wasn't an Andrew Yang supporter, I get it. So um, I actually genuinely do feel bad about Andrew Yang but when it comes to uh, Michael Bennett and Deval Patrick and their combined like five supporters. They can all eat shit and die. But the Yang gang, we're cool. I fuck with you. <laughs> And I'll leave that there. So obviously, Elizabeth Warren did not perform very well in New Hampshire, and a lot of people, I think, rightfully realized that this was a must-win state for her. I mean, New Hampshire is Massachusetts' neighbor. Demographically and theoretically, you should be able to pull out a win here, or at least come in second, but she finished in fourth place. So if you can't finish in at least the top two or three if we're being extra charitable in a race that should be a cakewalk for you. I just don't know how you're going to have a clear path to the nomination. And if I were Elizabeth Warren, I would see that the writing's on the wall and I would be trying to unite the progressive wing of the party. Sure, there was that spat between her and Bernie Sanders, but if I'm thinking about the future and getting my agenda implemented, I would be trying to unite the party. And, you know, she could be trying to position herself for a spot in Bernie's administration or to be the running mate. And even, you know, beyond that, she could position herself currently to run again in 2024 or 2028. But what she's doing now is the opposite. And her behavior makes no sense to me, but it's not shocking. So rather than trying to unite the progressive wings so we can beat the centrists she's choosing to not only attack bernie sanders again but attack his supporters supporters mind you that she will need if she somehow were able to pull out a win and become the nominee take a look but the fight between factions in our party has taken a sharp turn in recent weeks with ads mocking other candidates and with supporters of some candidates shouting curses at other Democratic candidates. These harsh tactics might work if you are willing to burn down the rest of the party in order to be the last man standing. They might work 
if you don't worry about leaving our party and our politics worse off than how you found it. And they might work if you think only you have all the answers and only you are the solution to all our problems. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there's a lot at stake and we have to be relentless in pushing back against the corporate propaganda being espoused by other candidates like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. He lies about Medicare for All. Amy Klobuchar says that Medicare for All means that we're taking away health insurance from people. Are we supposed to just not say anything, not respond, just be quiet as they lie about a policy that would save lives? So forgive me if once in a while we get a little bit rowdy and, you know, we become less civilized and we post rat emojis under Pete Buttigieg or snake emojis under you. You know, if I'm running for president, I'd rather some other candidate supporters post snake emojis underneath every one of my tweets than have another candidate just like lie and say I'm a sexist or imply I'm a sexist. Elizabeth Warren makes no sense to me. I, I don't get it. And look, the sad thing is that in the beginning of this campaign, she was running a pretty phenomenal campaign. It wasn't perfect, right? But she had this tagline, I've got a plan for that. And I thought that that was really persuasive. It was policy oriented. And when you focus on the issues, you can excel. You demonstrate to voters that you know what they need and you're a serious person. Now, there was some blind spots, right? She had a plan for everything but Medicare for All. But then she started to adopt Medicare for All and was a champion for it. She wasn't necessarily the best representative for it, but nonetheless, she still said, I'm with Bernie Sanders. And now look at her. And I don't know what lane she's trying to carve for herself. I think that Sean put it best on Twitter. He said, Warren shift to the center in a field packed with centrist candidates and ones without the progressive baggage of attacking billionaires and the likes was surely a bad move. Wonder what was going on there. I'll tell you what went on. She hired... More and more Hillary Clinton alum and Obama operatives, and now she's basically indistinguishable from most centrists. She's not talking about how she has a plan for everything or big structural reform. She's talking about how many selfies she takes. She's talking about the Democratic Party's core values, whatever that will mean. <laughs> it's sad. It's really sad. And she doesn't realize that being progressive is the ticket. That's her lane. You can't pick a lane and then change lanes late in the game, right? Like she started to slide when she moved away from Medicare for All and her supporters will say, look, all these Bernie bros are lying about her. She does support it. She split it up into two different pieces of legislation. Everybody with a brain knows that a sitting president will become less popular as their term goes on. So if you think that she's going to get it passed in her third year and she's able to survive her midterm, her first midterm, and not lose the House or the Senate, you're delusional. So that was a political maneuver to make sure she can move away from Medicare for All, but at the same time still have plausible deniability and say, I support it. No, we have to read between the lines. We have to see that these candidates, they are taking political positions for purposes of political expediency, and they will do what they need to do if they think that's going to help them win. Elizabeth Warren is a politician like everyone else, and she's no different, and we're seeing that right now. And on top of that, the things that she says here don't even make sense to me. She says, um, these harsh tactics, these attacks might work if you're willing to burn down the rest of the party in order to be the last man standing. Except, you know what? I kind of do want to burn down the rest of this fucking party, Elizabeth Warren. Half the party, more than half actually, they're just rank corporatists. They take money from Wall Street multinational corporations 
We get nothing. So how could you not want to burn down the party? Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because what people wanted was to throw a brick through the glass of the establishment's house because nothing was working. They tried Obama. So now they're trying Trump because they're desperate, their wallets aren't getting fatter, and they're more susceptible to radicalization. So a demagogue was able to take advantage of them. Like, how could you not want to burn down the rest of the party? This party is fucked. Who supports Democrats? Who's enthusiastic to be a Democrat? I'll tell you who. Less than a quarter of the population. Because when you look at public opinion polls, more people identify as an independent than they do Republican or Democrat. So nobody gives a fuck about party loyalty. I couldn't care less about Democrats versus Republicans. I want good policy that helps people. That's it. I don't care about, you know, the Democratic Party. This party has fucked us through and through. So if you think that I give a shit about them, I don't give a fuck. I want policy they're not delivering. So burn it down if we have to burn it down. That's the way I feel, Liz. And the fact that she doesn't acknowledge that, she doesn't acknowledge that voters are desperate currently, shows how out of touch she is. And it shows that all of these people who she hired are ruining her campaign. Why would you hire Hillary Clinton alum? They are losers. Why would you hire Obama operatives? When you yourself took issue with Obama, don't you think that that's going to influence you? I mean, she, you can see the way that she is influenced by the people who are advising her. They are the dumbest people ever. Anyone who is advising Elizabeth Warren should never have a job in politics again because she took a viable campaign. She was the front runner at some point. And they just threw all of that in the trash because she couldn't possibly defend one progressive position of Medicare for All. How pathetic is that? I don't know if it's because she's forming some type of VP deal with Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going through her head. But all I know is that the people who are advising her are misleading her. They're taking her in a horrible direction. And at this point, I don't even know that she would endorse Bernie Sanders if she dropped out. Like, she might even endorse Klobuchar because I don't, like, I don't know what she's talking about. No substance. There's, there's just nothing there now. She's talking about selfies constantly. It's like what we saw from Kamala when she was about to drop out. She backed away from Medicare for All. And so the only thing that she had and pretended to be passionate about was getting Trump banned from Twitter. That's what Elizabeth Warren is doing now with selfies. And I, I'm trying to not attack Elizabeth Warren and be overly critical because I know there's a lot of supporters of her that could potentially come over to Bernie Sanders, and I don't want to drive them away. Like about 40-50% of her supporters say that Bernie Sanders is their second choice. But you've got to understand, as Bernie Sanders supporters, this election is life or death. It's make or break. And what a lot of us see is we're marching straight towards apocalypse, climate catastrophe, and it doesn't matter which Democrat is elected. We're still heading towards apocalypse. We're just going a little bit slower. And Bernie Sanders, and at one point, possibly Elizabeth Warren, seemed like they were offering us this off-ramp, right? So it's like, Bernie Sanders is the life jacket that was thrown to us as we're drowning. And Elizabeth Warren grabs the rope and she's trying to reel it in so we can't grab it. That's the way it feels. And look, I'm someone who, I, like, I don't enjoy hating on Elizabeth Warren or criticizing her. In 2014, I wanted her to run for president. I was part of that nerdy draft Warren campaign because I didn't want Hillary Clinton to be the nominee because, well, look how that turned out. So it's like you want people to believe and you don't want to hate people, right? You don't love to hate people. You want people to believe in. And Elizabeth Warren was one of those people, but I don't believe in her anymore. I don't even know what she's doing. She could be uniting the party. Uh, she could be uniting progressives. She could be positioning herself for a Sanders-Warren ticket. 
and she's just slapping us across the face once again. What a disappointment Elizabeth Warren turned out to be. So I think that anyone with a functioning brain realizes that Bernie Sanders is now the Democratic Party primary frontrunner. And this is by all objective measures. Not what I say, but what the data says. He got the most votes in Iowa and New Hampshire. He's projected by 538 to dominate on Super Tuesday. He took the lead nationally. A new Monmouth poll finds that he has the most support among non-white voters. He made a 10-point gain just with African-American voters. So... He's a frontrunner. Although pundits on mainstream media, since they don't want that to be the case, they're having cognitive dissonance. And it's interesting because we're watching them react in real time and they are just embarrassing themselves. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that Bernie Sanders is now the frontrunner. So they're trying to twist themselves into logical pretzels uh, by finding ways to rationalize why he's not the frontrunner. And it's just downright embarrassing. So Chuck Todd of MSNBC... He decided to uh, voice how he just can't fathom why anyone would view Bernie as the frontrunner. I mean, look at his 2016 numbers and compare them to 2020. The percentages are way lower. So how could he be the frontrunner? I, I don't understand how Bernie is considered a frontrunner. This is a guy that had more, <laughs> more people showed up to the polls. Highest turnout ever, and his percentage went down, not up. Yeah. His total number went down, not up. And new voters actually voted for Buttigieg and Klobuchar. Because 2016 was a two-person race, and 2020 is a 10-person race. As more candidates enter the equation, percentages decrease. Of course, he'd do better in a two-way race than he would in a 10-way race. Like, I shouldn't have to explain this to someone who gets paid probably millions of dollars every single year to do news and inform people. But the fact that I do is a little worrisome, to say the least. And I wish I could tell you that Chuck Todd was the only person to make the same case, but he's not. On MSNBC, Lawrence O'Donnell also said, well, look, his 2016 numbers were, were way higher and he still didn't win the primary. So how is he the front runner now? If Bernie Sanders, though, doesn't run away with it, isn't this, well, I mean, he's he not hasn't running. even- look, look, He can't run away with it. Look, last time, Four years ago, sitting right here, uh, Bernie Sanders won 60% of the vote. We were sitting here and it came in at 60%. He's going to get half that if he's lucky tonight. And by the way, when he won 60% of the vote last year in New Hampshire, that was not enough of a launching pad to actually win the nomination. So the story of the Sanders campaign so far this year is how much ground he's lost from four years ago. He's lost half of the support in New Hampshire. He's lost half of his support nationwide. He, he he ran at 49% against Hillary Clinton nationwide last time. He's running about 25% nationwide. So all that support has gone to other people. Uh, and so it is very difficult right now to see what the route is to winning the nomination through the primaries at this point for any candidate. That route has not yet emerged. It could. It could easily emerge. Are but you as of now, it's not there. This is embarrassing and their desperation is so apparent. Even if you don't have the same critiques of mainstream media as myself or anyone who watches this program, like it is painfully obvious that he's trying to gaslight people. He's trying to spin this. But look, spin is nothing more than spin. We can spin it too. As Eyeball Slicer pointed out on Twitter, if we spin it our way, it looks like Bernie Sanders actually made huge gains because if you base the New Hampshire primary on the number of candidates defeated, well, I mean, in 2016, he only defeated one candidate and this time he defeated nine candidates. So, I mean, look, we can play the spin game too, except what if rather than spinning it that way, 
we take all of the candidates who are not Bernie Sanders, or at a minimum, the moderates, and add them together. That's also what they're saying. Uh, Chris Matthews pointed this out. This situation. So I'm a bit frustrated, and I'm not the answer to all questions, Brian. Brian and Rachel, I'm just not tonight. I'm a little frustrated because I don't know what this. It was a victory. A win's a win, as you say at the New York Giants, New York Football Giants. Yes, <laughs> but it wasn't the victory of a guy that got 60% last time. And Buttigieg and Klobuchar together trounced Bernie tonight. And on top of that, there's this beautiful graphic. I don't know where it came from, maybe MSNBC. But uh, as you can see, if you add up Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg arbitrarily, I don't know why they chose just these three, then they clearly are in the lead and they have a gigantic lead over Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and I couldn't find the clip for this one, but Sean King tweeted about it. He says on MSNBC, they just announced that Bernie Sanders has taken a big lead in New Hampshire, but the panelists then started saying that even though he's in first, that if you add up Pete and Amy together, that they're in first. That's not actually how elections work. <laughs> but still, they're trying so hard. Look, if we take Pete and Amy and we fuse them into one human being in the same way that Goku and Vegeta refused into Vegito, or Trunks and Gotem refused into Gotenks to beat Majin Buu, of course, then maybe they'd have a chance. I mean, that's just my thinking. So if we make them into one person and maybe, maybe even add Biden into the equation, maybe they would be powerful enough to take on Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's what we have uh, reached. That's the level of delusion that we are at. We're in fantasy land. Like, of course, if you add up the other candidates... Collectively, they'd have a higher percentage than Bernie Sanders, but he has the most votes. He's winning. Do you understand? Like, he is winning. He got first place in the number of votes in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's how we choose winners. But I digress, because they also, rather than, you know, dwelling on Bernie Sanders um, getting first place, before we found out the results, they already anticipated that Bernie would win, and they tried to spin it, so that way third place was more important than first place. And I really wish I was kidding about this, but I'm not. The real thing that I'm looking for tonight is, of course, that key third place finish, um, which we were just talking about there in the break. Amy Klobuchar, the momentum is on her side. This would be a huge, huge victory for Amy. In fact, I would almost argue that a third place finish for Amy would be stronger and more important than a first place finish for Bernie. I mean, of course it would. That key third place finish is really what everyone strives for. <laughs> I don't... I don't know how to respond to this. These people are respected by a large portion of the American population. They are tasked with the duty of informing the electorate. And they're saying that third place is actually more important. Now, can you focus on the gains that Amy Klobuchar made, to be fair? Sure. But to say that that's more important than getting first place... I don't, like, there are no words to explain that level of absurdity. What we are seeing is cognitive dissonance. They don't want Bernie to be the nominee, they don't want him to be the frontrunner, and they don't want to admit it. So, what they're doing is making themselves look ridiculous in an attempt to downplay his victory. And even if you don't buy the third-place narrative, maybe you'll find this one from Obama alum Jim Messina more persuasive because he concludes that a lot of New Hampshire voters backed moderates, so the big winner last night could be Mayor Bloomberg. 
So do you understand how they're trying to finesse and mold the data and move the goalpost? At first, it's third place that's more important. But now, you know, the person who wasn't even in this race, he actually did the best. Not the person who won, but the person who wasn't even on the ballot, literally. He's the winner, possibly. I mean, what a joke. But when they're not trying to finesse the results, if you will... Then they're just outright lying about Bernie Sanders as Fox News would, and casually so, mind you. This is clearly a fight for to be the alternative to Bernie Sanders, yeah. right? If you've got Bernie Sanders kind of sailing through Iowa, looking to do well here, it's which of these three, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, can consolidate the rest of this field, if it's possible at all. Does this essentially pave the way, this, this infighting for Buttigieg to be that, uh, that alternative leaving the Democratic Party with two candidates who have shown no ability to appeal to people of color. You're wrong. That, kids, is what we'd call an alternative fact. Because Bernie Sanders received the most votes from non-white voters in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and according to a Monmouth poll, he is now in the lead among non-white voters. I repeat, he is in the lead and just made a 10-point gain among voters of color. So what that pundit told you was a bold-faced lie. Lying through their teeth because they don't want to admit that Bernie Sanders is doing well. Now, Chris Matthews, getting back to him, took a different approach. Rather than just straight up lying or fear-mongering about, you know, execution squads in Central Park, he chose to try to reason with voters and get them to see why Amy Klobuchar really is a great candidate. Why? Because she's so joyful. The Democratic Party is clearly divided between left and center left. Clearly, we all know that. And the candidates fill those roles. Bernie fills the one in the progressive left, clearly. But who's going to be his challenger in the center? Who's going to be that person? Are you going to have to wait for Mike Bloomberg to show up with all his billions or not? Now, Klobuchar is winning in a number of those categories tonight in our exit polling. She is leading what I think is the most important category. Who can not just win the election, but unite the country in a matter of days, Friday night to Tuesday morning, she did it. She showed with audacity you can jump out there and become a hero. And by the way, Democrats fall in love. And I think in her that tonight we all agree there's some joy there. Bernie indicts. The weaknesses of American economic life mainly, the weaknesses in terms of our healthcare system, the evils he sees in the, in the fossil fuel industry, and all those kinds of things, they're indictments, they're not happy, they're not joyous. She finds a way to care about the problem in a positive, empathetic way. And I think that empathy is something that Democrats need. Yes, because the lady who abuses her staff and tells voters she's going to do jack shit for them is the individual who's the most joyful and has the most empathy. <laughs> it's like we are living in the twilight zone this is where we're at they hate bernie sanders so much that they are throwing everything at the wall with hopes that something will stick that we will grab onto and get us to move away from bernie sanders and you know judging by the look on chris matthew's face right now I get it, he's scared right now, but he's not alone because our good friend James Carville endorsed Michael Bennett in hopes that, you know, that would give him a much-needed boost because maybe Michael Bennett is better than the other thousand centrists in the race, but I mean, he dropped out right after New Hampshire. So if nothing is working and they've tried everything, this leaves us with a very important question, and I'll let Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post ask it. So who's going to stop Bernie? Please, 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 somebody save us from Bernie Sanders. He wants to raise the minimum wage, legalize marijuana, and give people health care. Can you imagine? I don't want to live in that kind of a country. What are we, Canada?
they're begging and they're pleading with us. And I'm not being hyperbolic. As Max Boot asks, please, Democrats, do the smart thing and coalesce quickly around one of the three moderates, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, or Michael Bloomberg, who are still standing after the first two contests. The future of our democracy may depend on it. Now, I find it hilariously ironic that he claims to be concerned about democracy as he openly wishes that one of the Democrats that the party coalesces around is Michael Bloomberg, a literal oligarch who's trying to buy his way into the White House. But yet, go democracy. I care about democracy. Let's let him buy the election, though. All to stop Bernie. These people are so fucking dumb that when I watch mainstream media, like if I tune in for longer than 20 minutes, I feel like my head is going to explode. <laughs> and it's like, I, I laugh, but really it's it's not funny. But you have to laugh to keep yourself from raging because if I wasn't able to channel what they do to the country, then I would like snap this iPad in half and throw it across the room because I mean, this really is harmful. We laugh at it, I laugh at it, but what they're doing is they are brainwashing an entire country all because they want their tax cuts to remain intact and because they work at MSNBC and they probably tell them, don't say anything nice about Bernie Sanders, we have to defeat him. I don't know what's going on in production meetings, but I mean, it's evident that there is this coordinated effort at MSNBC to stop Bernie Sanders. If you tuned in to election night coverage in New Hampshire, it was just craven. It was insane. I don't know how else to describe it. It was worse than Fox News. Like, they're getting worse than Fox News. Fox News is more fair to Bernie Sanders than the so-called liberal network. Like, do you understand? Like, this is insane. This is insane. And going back to that clip of Chris Matthews, it's funny because he openly wondered who is going to be the one to save us from Bernie Sanders. Um, could it be Pete? Could it be Amy? Can they save us now? Or do we have to wait for Mike Bloomberg to show up? So, I mean, they're really betting a lot on Mike Bloomberg, and they're not criticizing him in the way that they should a presidential candidate. Now, maybe it's just me, but I know that he's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising, which benefits MSNBC. So maybe that's part of the reason why. I don't know what it is, but you can now see them pretty explicitly trying to nudge you in the direction of Michael Bloomberg. In fact, that's what Joy Reid did. And she explained, after years, mind you, to give you some context, that Bernie Sanders isn't a Democrat, that Mike Bloomberg might be the best bet for Democrats because he's a Republican. He's got a lot of potential to have black elected officials, and you see them coming forward because he's actually put his money where his mouth is on those liberal causes. On the other hand, he did the two things that really go together, which is gentrification and stop and frisk in New York, so that when you're gentrifying a neighborhood in Brooklyn, now the new people who move in, the rich people, are afraid of the old people that were there, that were in the projects in Fort Greene, and then you start stop and frisk, and it's intense, and he's been defending it right up until last year. He defended um, the, the crime bill, and he said, I don't understand why Joe Biden is embarrassed about being white. Why is he apologizing for being white? So he still sounds like a Republican to a lot of people. So it's a weird coalition, but I gotta tell you, if this is an exhaustion election, which I think it is, an exhaustion election means people just want to sleep at night. It I don't means... know what you're talking about. <laughs> Coming from someone with severe insomnia, they're saying that Trump is exhausting. So even, and I, you know, I know Republicans who, they don't mind the fiscal policies of Trump. Right. They like that, but they also want to sleep at night. Right. So if you're a Republican and you still want Republican policy, but you don't want the tweets and the madness, you might go to him. If you're a Democrat that just wants to beat Trump at all costs, mm -hmm. You see Trump as just this force of, of, of evil. 
and you just want the money that it's going to take to defeat him, and you think this guy will spend $2 billion to beat him, I, you might vote And for I think the, something I pick up anecdotally is you want the guy that's going to fight high and low. Yeah. I mean, there is something, and, and, and it's, it's a, this is a compliment, not an insult to Democrats. They follow the rules. Absolutely. They follow the rules. And with Trump, you can't beat him by following the rules right. because he cheats at everything. He, yeah. he asks Ukraine to help him. You know, be, yeah. I mean, he cheats at everything. And there is a sense with Bloomberg, not that he'll break any rules, but that he'll go high and he'll go low. He well, talked about, you know, porn and yep. a cheeseburger and a putter being in his brain. That yep. was our friend Tim O'Brien, too. And you cannot beat Trump unless you hit him where it hurts. And the bottom line is, number one, you can't beat showbiz without showbiz. And Democrats don't understand showbiz, even though all of showbiz is on their side <laughs> in Hollywood, but they don't understand showbiz. And the and the other reality is, if you want a Democrat to win, they, they have to know how to fight like a Republican. Right. He's a Republican. Exactly. He used to be anyway. Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we just run Mitt Romney? In fact, fuck it. Let's just run Donald Trump like we are reaching onion article territory with the suggestions here. Let's run a Republican because Democratic Party voters definitely want to vote for a Republican more than a Democrat. I just, I don't know what to say. And again, I can't stress this enough. The fact that all of these pundits are being extra kind to Mike Bloomberg after he's spending money to advertise is a scandal in and of itself. Like him buying the election or trying to buy the election, that's a scandal. But the fact that pundits are obviously falling in line and not criticizing him, that is something that we need to pay attention to as well. This is how manufacturing consent works. Now, because we all just tortured ourselves watching those awful clips from these lunatics who think that they know better, I'm going to give you a little bit of um, a chaser, something to cleanse the palate, something that's actually surprisingly delightful to see from mainstream media. Van Jones on CNN did what seemingly no other pundit did. Bernie Sanders is a phenomenon. He, he is, it, it, he doesn't get any attention, people don't talk about him, he just continues to rack up these big, big uh, uh, numbers, these big margins. And he's doing stuff that we don't talk about enough. He's appealing to young people, and people of color, increasingly, and women, and the beer track voters that you know, people talk about for Biden, he, they're showing up for Bernie Sanders. He's got an army of unbelievable uh, donors. If anybody else had all that, we'd be saying, this guy's our guy. For whatever reason, we continue to talk about everybody but Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I wonder why that is. <laughs> so, look, all I've got to say is this is only the beginning. Like, think about if we wake up the next day after Super Tuesday and Bernie Sanders really does dominate in the way that 538 is projecting he will dom dominate. All of that crime that we saw will be 10 times worse. And at this point, they're so brazen and trying to erase Bernie Sanders, I don't even know that the mainstream media will tell us that he won Super Tuesday if he does. I mean, look at this headline on Twitter from Reuters. They don't even say that Bernie Sanders won. I mean, they're so obvious. So obvious. They hate Bernie Sanders. They want to stop him at all costs. And no matter how well Bernie Sanders performs, they're already cooking up narratives to spin it. I guarantee it right now. They're already working on what to say after Super Tuesday. They're already working on what to say after the Democratic convention. They're already working on what to say on November 4th after he wins the election. That's what they're working on. They have all of this pre-planned because they just can't allow Bernie Sanders to win because they are pro-corporate propagandists 
And that's never going to change. It doesn't matter who's elected president. So what we have to do is make sure that we don't prop them up. We don't give them our views and we support indie media. If it's not going to be this show, support a different show. Because all I know is that if corporate media were the ones who exclusively covered elections and we had no other alternative sources, I mean, could you imagine? Mike Bloomberg would probably just cruise through the nomination. So, I mean, it's no secret that Bernie Sanders supporters are loathed by the mainstream media. And right after Chuck Todd quoted someone who referred to Bernie supporters as digital brown shirts, yeah, um, they talked about how, you know, Bernie's angry supporters might act if, theoretically speaking, the DNC just stole the nomination away from Bernie Sanders if he went into the convention with only a plurality and not an outright majority. And they just discussed this casually and you know there's a lot of implications so we'll watch and then i have a lot to say about this this is a part of the campaign that we never had to worry about four years ago yeah and i think the question becomes what if we get to the convention and bernie sanders does not have any more near a majority but he has a plurality he has 35 37 percent of the delegates and he goes to the convention and says i won more primaries than anyone else i have more delegates than anyone else i dare you to deny me the nomination That's exactly super delegates. What I was talking about. all right you don't have super delegates anymore i mean on the first the ballot, ballot. On the first on the, ballot. at least yeah. on the first ballot you don't have the members of Congress who would be the elders. I mean, that was exactly the reform that the Bernie Sanders people demanded. So what they're basically saying is what happens if going into this convention, Bernie Sanders has a really great case for himself as the nominee. He has the most delegates. He has a plurality. He won the most votes and he doesn't get the nomination. It's taken from him and given to someone else like Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar. Will his supporters react in the same way that they react now online? How are they going to take that? Let me just say this. You shouldn't be worried with the way that Sanders supporters will react if the nomination is literally stolen from him. You should be worried that our democracy dies officially in the event that happens. That should be your primary concern. But the way that they talk about this is as if it's going to be a certainty that they're just going to take it from Bernie Sanders. And look, as it stands now, there's no guarantee that there won't be a contested convention because it doesn't necessarily seem like anyone will win outright. I hope Bernie Sanders gets a majority. But if going into the convention, he has a plurality and he doesn't become the nominee, and you're really curious about how we're going to react, just know that you don't want to find out. Because not only will Donald Trump be guaranteed a victory, the Democratic Party will be dead. Dead. Generations, millennials and Zoomers, and probably some Gen Xers, will never vote for another Democrat again. It will destroy the fucking party. And on top of that, Imagine hundreds of thousands of people, not just at the convention, but in cities across the country, protesting outright theft. I mean, the fact that they're not talking about this cautiously and, you know, explicitly and unequivoc unequivocally saying this wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. You honestly believe that we're just going to be okay with you stealing the nomination if we work really hard and you just take it from us? No, fuck that. Um, the last Democratic Party nominee who won outright a majority was John Kerry. So that means that Obama, Hillary Clinton in 2016, 
Al Gore. I mean, they had a plurality. So for you to deny Bernie Sanders the nomination if he has a plurality, when there's like a thousand candidates in the race, we wouldn't tolerate it at all. The party would be fucking dead forever. It would be dead. Do you understand? Like you're blackpilling a generation if you do that. So the fact that you're even just casually talking about this is very irresponsible. Like, I promise you, Donald Trump becomes the president again. He gets a second term if you do that. And on top of that, you lose just everything. You lose everything. You destroy your party at that point because you make such a brazen attempt to destroy democracy that there's nothing to be recovered. Trust can never be rebuilt, ever. So no, that's not going to happen. Now, they talked about this in a segment on CNN with Terry McAuliffe and David Axelrod. And they were actually a little bit more responsible. And they said, no, of course, that would be something that's horrible because this is something that is a possibility. They could try to take it from us. If this goes to second ballot and superdelegates vote, I mean, there is a possibility that they can steal it from us, which is why we have to make sure we work hard to ensure that we win on the first ballot. But regardless, getting to that clip, um, this is what David Axelrod and Terry McAuliffe had to say about this. Remember, the last nominee to go in who actually had the majority was John Kerry, if you remember. 2008, Hillary had to send her votes over. The same thing happened in 16. Sanders had to send. The last one who's actually gotten this on the first ballot, people forget, is John Kerry in 2004. But of course, the, the change in rules relative to superdelegates not getting a say on that first ballot this time, but having a say for the subsequent ballots, if it comes down to that, who knows? That's a very that's generally, it that's never a does. Very I mean, this is more scenario. of a mythical thing on these superdelegates. Sure. It really doesn't. But let me say, if someone goes in and has the most delegates and the superdelegates change that, that's a disaster. Get it. I think Go home, burn the house down. You're, you're gonna, you know, most but you know, with, with Trump, everyone was talking about a contested convention with Donald Trump. And of course, that went right up to the line. And that that never materialized, although that was a very yeah. fractious convention with Ted Cruz's speech, if you'll recall. That's right. And the Republicans managed to win the the presidency. Yeah. So but the you got to get 1,991 delegates. As I say, you got to go back to Kerry. It's the negotiations heading into it. And who will come out in those right. April states? Right. And we've got New York, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio. We've got some big states. So they say this is about negotiations, right? You've got to talk to the other candidates and put your delegates together. Um, no, it's not. If we get the most votes, we become the nominee. Period. End of story. We don't have to talk to Pete Buttigieg and barter with him or Amy Klobuchar. If anyone thinks that they can go in with less votes and become the nominee and still win, they are fucking delusional. Delusional. You will lose to Donald Trump by a larger margin than what Hillary Clinton lost to him by. He wins the popular vote and the electoral college and your party dies. How does that sound? The party will collapse. It can't survive as an institution if you do this. These are not the days where you can just go in a smoke-filled back room and choose who the nominee is going to be unilaterally. You don't get to do that. I know that that's how it was before, but if you want to survive as an institution, you can't do that. You cannot survive if you steal a nomination and brazenly undermine democracy like that. Now, David Axelrod pointed out that would be a disaster, and he's right about that, and I'm glad that he pointed that out. You know, Terry McAuliffe said if they're doing that, they're basically just burning the house down. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a possibility. And look, back in 2015, when there was a possibility, or 2016, that, uh, you know, Republicans would steal the nomination away from Donald Trump before it looked like he would have a majority. I actually 
defended Donald Trump and said that's unacceptable. I mean, yes, he's a terrible candidate. His policies are fascistic, but you have to really decide, are you committed to democracy or are you not? And if you're committed to democracy, then you have to be consistent. And what's really frightening to me, but unsurprising, is that every single Democrat screeched at the top of their fucking lungs about the popular vote. Now they're not saying shit now that Bernie won the popular vote in Iowa. They screeched for three years about Russia stealing the nomination away or stealing the presidency away from Hillary Clinton because of memes. And so if they were to just steal the nomination away, if they're stupid enough to do that, they collapse. The party couldn't survive something like that. Democracy couldn't survive something like that. So, I mean, if you're going to talk about this, be responsible. Don't just throw it out there and wonder, hmm, what would happen if we stole it away from Bernie Bros? Would they overreact like they do about everything? <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you expect? Do you expect us to just be like, oh, okay, well, we, we put up a good fight, but I mean, the superdelegates spoke. Do you just honestly believe that that's what would happen? We would raise hell. We would protest in every single city across the country. That's unacceptable. That's undemocratic. How would you expect the Democratic Party to ever win another election again if you do this? You would have to wait like 100 years until everyone that's alive now dies and forgets about that. That's how bad of a situation that would be. And look, as someone who absolutely loathes Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, if they were able to somehow win a plurality of delegates but were denied the nomination for like Joe Biden or even Bernie Sanders... I would, on principle, have to reject that because either you support democracy or you don't. Democracy is supposed to allow us to have options and work through the system to put up those options and win. And if you just outright deny us that when we follow the process and play by the rules, y you can't win. It's not as, you know, uh, simple as Trump gets a second term if this happens. The party collapses if this happens. You never win again. You never win for our lifetimes until the next generation, my great nephew's grandchildren, forgets about all this. That's how bad the situation would be. So don't even fucking dare try it. The DNC better not even think about doing something like that. I know that they want to bring back superdelegates on the first round. A couple of DNC members are floating that. But if you truly want to have a party left, I mean, the fact that this is even something that anyone is thinking about as a possibility shows that American democracy is so fragile, it is on the verge of collapse. Democracies are, these are not things that last forever. We'll just put it that way. I studied comparative political science throughout grad school, and one thing that is certain about democracy is that it someday dies. You see democracies around the world pop up, and then they become authoritarian regimes pretty quickly. It's amazing that we lasted this long, but if we have outright election theft like that, that's super brazen, you no longer have a democracy. You delegitimize American institutions. Democracy itself is no longer trusted. It goes away. Like, it would be absolutely devastating. So, for them to even consider this, it really is just, it shows the state of American politics. We're in really, really bad shape. And they better hope that Bernie Sanders wins if they truly care about democracy because he is the only one, like FDR, who can save the system from collapsing in on itself. So, I'm not going to lie, it's a little alarming to me that more people aren't concerned about the threat that Mike Bloomberg poses to democracy. I mean, 
people aren't really that outraged at the fact that we have a billionaire who is spending hundreds of millions of dollars, more so than candidates who have been in the race for more than a year, and he's trying to buy his way into the White House, and he bought his way up to third place. Like, how are people not worried about this? Like, do you understand the type of precedent that this sets? Like, it's bad enough that Trump was able to buy his way into the White House, at least halfway there. But I mean, if Bloomberg is able to pull this off, like, what do we get in 2024? Uh, a Jeff Bezos presidency, and then we get one of the Waltons running in 2028. Like, People need to understand that democracy is a very fragile thing, and I know that in America, we've had a quote-unquote democracy now for hundreds of years, even though I would argue you're not democracy unless you have universal suffrage, but I digress. Like, democracy is fragile, so just because we all grew up with it and we all know it doesn't mean it's going to be here forever. You have to fight to defend it and consolidate it and expand it. But with Mike Bloomberg here before our very eyes, he's posing a threat and a really strong one at that, where we are going to devolve into a full-blown oligarchy if you can even argue that that hasn't happened, if you want to argue that, you know, that hasn't happened yet. Because they're already buying politicians, they influence policy outcomes, and now they're cutting out the middlemen, and they're just running themselves. So more people should be outraged, and thankfully one patriot showed up to a Mike Bloomberg rally to warn people there, this is dangerous. But um, they didn't take kindly to her warning, and they proceeded to boo her. Take a look. <laughs> I am that excited. That is not democracy. That is plutocracy. So in case you couldn't hear, she said Bloomberg is trying to buy this election. That is not democracy. That is plutocracy. And then it looks like they cut her mic. And then everyone in that crowd proceeded to boo her very loudly. And let me just say this to every single person in that crowd. Shame on you, you goddamn mindless fucking sheep. Shame on you. You are showing up to cheer for a fucking billionaire who has no policy ideas. The only policies he's Im implemented have been absolutely disastrous. Just two days ago, we all listened to a tape where he admitted that he is basically openly racist because we should be over-policing black neighborhoods because that's where all the crime is. Forget socioeconomic factors. Forget poverty. Forget all of these other causal mechanisms. I think that black people commit more crime, so let's over-police them. That's the way it should be. That's what he said on tape. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but... I put a video up on that, so go check it out if you want to know exactly what he says. This is an individual who has billions upon billions of dollars, but he doesn't even support a minimum wage increase. Don't take my word for it. Take his. I, for example, am not in favor, have never been in favor of raising the minimum wage. He's never supported a minimum wage increase. So what, back in the 90s when it was like, what, $3? You didn't support an increase then, and you wouldn't support it now if it were still at $3? And he's serious because he vetoed a minimum wage increase when he was the mayor of New York City. So, I mean, this guy is a ghoul. Um, he's a former Republican turned independent, turned Democrat. So he's all over the map. But ideologically, he's mostly conservative. He's openly transphobic. He's racist. And he's trying to buy our democracy. And that person on that stage tried to warn you dipshits and you booed her. Like, this is why democracies die. This is why fascism is able to
to turn democracy into authoritarian regimes. Now I see why, because people are so fucking stupid that their heads so far up their asses that they don't even see a threat in front of them. Like, Jesus Christ, I don't know how these people manage to tie their own shoes in the morning. Like, if you can't see why what that lady was saying was real, then you're just too fucking stupid. Like, I, I don't know what to say at this point. Like, these are the types of things that make it evident why democracies don't last forever, why they are in fact fragile, because people can easily be manipulated, propaganda works, and overall, people, they want to vote in their own self-interest, but they just don't do that. They can easily be duped to voting against their own best interest, and that's just a really sad fact, and even when people try to warn and educate them, they just uh, yell at them. And look, as much as I can't stand Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, at least they're not buying their way to the nomination. Now, you know, to a lesser extent, Pete Buttigieg is the errand boy of billionaires. He loves billionaires. They're trying to help him get to the White House by bankrolling him. So that is still evil, albeit to a lesser extent. At least he's trying to do it, not by self-financing his campaign. And, you know, Regardless of all of these things, the conservatism, the transphobia, the racism, Democrats are choosing to embrace him. Not just, you know, the Democratic Party establishment, but the mainstream uh, media is too. I mean, think about this. The DNC, they literally put surrogates on the Rules Committee for Mike Bloomberg, and then they altered the rules after he donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to him so he can participate in debates. And if you ask Nancy Pelosi, she thinks that his participation is great. Why are the Republicans so afraid of stopping foreign interference in our elections? Why are the Republicans so afraid of protecting the integrity of our uh, elections and, and protecting the... Uh, we did get money over $400 million in the... Uh, uh, it's not an omnibus, the minibus or whatever, that we passed at the end of over last McConnell's year. Over his objection, because he is standing in the way of the election integrity that we need. As far as Michael Bloomberg is concerned, uh, I, I think that his, his uh, involvement in this campaign uh, will be a positive. Now, the reason why I wanted to play for you what she said before she got to the Bloomberg answer, because somebody asked this question, obviously, was because she goes on this little mini rant about democracy, how great it is, but then she goes on to say this about someone who's trying to buy the election. I think that his involvement in this campaign will be a positive one. This is why things are the way that they are. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our opposition leader, Nancy Pelosi. Because the Democratic Party's tent is now so big that it is wide enough to include literal racist transphobic republicans but yet donald trump is bad because he's a racist republican but let's welcome them in our tent as well at what point does the democratic party's tent become so big that it even includes donald trump is he welcome is mike pence welcome we already know that amy klobuchar uh recently stated that maybe the democratic party's tent is big enough to include anti-abortion democrats as well so at what point do you just not become a party and you just merge with Republicans and you just become one unitary party? That's where we're headed. That is where we're headed. And let me just say this. Donate to Shahid Buttar because Nancy Pelosi absolutely deserves to lose her seat. And I hope that she's defeated by the widest margin imaginable. I hope she's humiliated because this person 
is just a terrible human being. And centrists love her. They yasqueen her because she tore up fucking Donald Trump's notes. Oh, God. How can you watch this and not just be utterly repulsed by what's happening? Democracy is very fragile. That's that's the takeaway. And, you know, when democracy collapses, it'll probably be because Americans cheered it on. Because we're seeing that now. I mean, you had someone try to warn them, this is not democracy, this is plutocracy. Plutocracy. He's trying to buy the election, and they booed her. All right, well, boo her at your own peril, because she's trying to warn you. So when you have even less of a say in politics, if you want to even argue that you have a say to begin with now, blame yourself. So if you've been tuning into MSNBC lately, which you absolutely should not do, you'd see that they are absolutely distraught with the prospect of Bernie Sanders becoming the Democratic Party's nominee. And they're hoping that if Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar fall through, that Mike Bloomberg will be there to save the Democratic Party from the threat that is Bernie Sanders. Because God forbid we get someone in office who cares about the people and wants to give everyone health care and save the planet can't have that. So they think that the savior of democracy is the guy who's trying to ruin democracy by buying his way into the White House. That's what we're dealing with now. But what's interesting is that Donald Trump showed that he is more sophisticated when it comes to political strategy than the pundits at MSNBC. Like, this is stunning to me. Trump knows more. He has his finger on the pulse of America more so than the people who are supposed to know the country the best. So he was talking about Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders, and he discussed who he'd prefer to run against. And obviously he said he'd rather run against Bloomberg because he can beat him. Frankly, I'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders because Sanders has real followers, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not. I happen to think it's terrible what he says, but he has followers. Bloomberg's just buying his way in. Guess what? Donald Trump is right. Don't say that very often, but he's right here. Bloomberg doesn't have real support. He is buying his way. He bought his way into third place, not by convincing people that he has the best agenda, but by running ads and flooding these networks with ads. And by basically buying complicity, because if you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ads at MSNBC, CNN... Do you honestly think that those pundits, those television hosts will feel inclined to critique Mike Bloomberg? If they do, it's going to be tepidly, but they're not really going to be rigorous in their scrutiny. So there's no support there. He's not convincing people. Ask anyone what policies Mike Bloomberg supports. Don't know what he supports, but I do know that he's the guy that implemented stop and frisk, which was a racist policy, and we now know that it wasn't just an unintended consequence that black and brown people were racially profiled. That was the goal. He said it on tape. But Bernie Sanders has spent years now building up this massive grassroots coalition. It's now the most diverse. It's now the most enthusiastic. It has the youngest by far. So if I'm Donald Trump and I'm self-interested and I want to get reelected, I would be an idiot to think that I'd have a better shot at beating Bernie than someone like Bloomberg. Like, what people in the Democratic Party and pundits don't realize is that 
If you are giving voters the option of Republican and Republican light, why on earth would they opt for the Republican light when they could just have the real thing? Like, do you think that the Democratic Party is going to be energized to come out and vote for a Republican or a Republican? I mean, Mike Bloomberg is a Republican. Uh, when it comes to ideology, functionally, he's a Republican. He just endorsed George W. Bush in 2004 after he invaded Iraq. So do you think voters are going to lift a finger to help get Bloomberg elected because we have to defeat Donald Trump? Of course that's not going to happen. You'd have to be an idiot to think that. But if you're a pundit and you're desperate and you don't want Bernie to win, you know, you're willing to believe in anything. So, I mean, Bloomberg, if anyone is going to demoralize and suppress the turnout in 2020, it's going to be him. Democratic voters and young people aren't going to allow this oligarch to buy his way into the White House, and they shouldn't. Like, if Bloomberg's the nominee, do you think he's getting my vote? Fuck no, he's not getting my vote. At that point, I would be so demoralized that I don't even know if I would vote at all. Like, and I'm in Oregon. They get my ballots mailed to me, and I don't have to do very much. But I might not even vote just because I can't participate in the system, where we have one billionaire who bought his way to the nomination facing off against another billionaire who bought his way to the nomination, and both are right-wing. Like, <laughs> that system is deeply illegitimate, and I, I couldn't... I wouldn't feel right legitimizing that disgusting, corrupt, plutocratic system. So, I mean, Donald Trump is absolutely correct here, and it's astonishing to me that he has more sense politically, at least when it comes to strategy, than people on TV who get paid millions of dollars to bloviate. I mean, look, if you listen to MSNBC and CNN, I can't imagine the way that you think about politics. Like, it's almost inconceivable to me. If you know anyone who watches MSNBC and CNN, they are poisoning your brain. They're poisoning the brains of your loved ones. Get them to turn that shit the fuck off. Get them a subscription to any independent media news show. I don't care if it's this show. I don't care if it's another show. Like, there has to be some type of alternative non-corporate entity that talks about politics in an objective way. And look, we all have our biases, right? Nobody's perfect. We all speak from a very subjective perspective, but at least there's no corporate control. Like, I don't have to worry that if I criticize Mike Bloomberg, I'm not going to get hired at Bloomberg in the future, or he's not going to advertise on the Humanist Report. doesn't work that way, right? I have my biases. I support Bernie Sanders. I'm a democratic socialist. I hate capitalism, but you know where I stand. At corporate media, we don't know where they stand. They try to pretend like they're neutral, but they're not neutral. They're not even objective. They're clowns, and they can't even realize what Donald Trump realizes. So, I mean, this should be obvious to everyone. Trump, of course, would prefer to run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders, but, I mean, if you told anyone that in mainstream media on MSNBC, they wouldn't believe you. Climate change is an existential threat. We have been told by scientists that if we don't take dramatic action within the next 10 years, it will be too late. With our warming oceans, with our polluted air, it's there in so many ways, so even if we can't see it, we have to pay attention to it. My family's been here 150 years. Our pecan orchard was big enough for the whole family to live on. It was the first, and for a good while, it was the biggest. All of our family could work here, uh, make a living. We prided ourselves in growing the most amount of pecans. It, it, it was just really bountiful. 
The coal plant came in in 77. We started having things happen with our trees, limbs dying, then whole trees were dying. We couldn't solve it out. I was always having headaches. The MRIs showed that I had the third largest tumor in the United States, in my skull. My family doctor, he said that my tumor came from emissions from the power plant. Then the picture turned to the coal plant causing our problem. I started investigating the Texas Health Department. These emissions caused the trees to die and put us out of business. My purpose in life, it just blew apart. I miss everything that we've lost, but I, I can't bring it back. You just don't see a lot of people running for any type of office do the type of work that Mike does, where he can change some of these rules and regulations that we have. I'm depending on Mike to do that for me. The Fayette coal plant is literally killing the future for dozens of counties here in Texas. People like Harvey are suffering because of climate change. Even if we don't see it, it's happening around the world. It's important to all of us to fight because this is our only planet. We don't get a second chance. And I believe organizing is the way we make political change. My campaign is about showing up in every county in this congressional district to let folks know that we're gonna fight for them. I've been fighting for the people for 21 years as a public school teacher, as a union organizer, a civil rights lawyer fighting for voting rights. If we say we need health care. If we need housing, we need clean air, we need clean water. It's important for all of us to stand up and fight back because our corrupt political system won't change unless we force it to. We need to show folks that we're going to fight for them and make sure they can elect the representatives they deserve. Hello everyone, I'm here with Mike Siegel. He is a former public school teacher and current civil rights attorney. He's been endorsed by brand new Congress, Our Revolution, the Sunrise Movement, and he's running in Texas's 10th congressional district, and he's here to tell us about his campaign. Mike, thank you for coming on the program. Right on. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, and these types of candidates such as yourself, who I talk to are from Texas, you're incredible because you're running in an area of the country that is uh, perceived to be relatively conservative. So we see a lot of milk toast candidates, a lot of neoliberals emerge out of these types of areas in hopes that they can win over, you know, th these types of purple districts and whatnot. So tell us a little bit about your race and the dynamics there and why you think you can win by running on a very bold progressive platform. Right on. And yeah, you're right. There's that conventional view that to win a, a district like this, you have to be a former Republican military veteran, you know, supporting a public option or something like that. And uh, I don't think that's true at all. Um, so I come to this, you know, I'm a long time, as you say, uh, public school teacher, civil rights lawyer. Uh, before I ran for Congress, I was a city attorney for the city of Austin. And my biggest political involvement here in Texas was to be the lead lawyer uh, suing the state of Texas to stop a hateful anti-immigrant law in 2017. 
uh, show me your papers law called Texas Senate Bill 4. And really that fight prefigured some of the dynamics in Texas. You know, that was a fight when basically Trump's elected and the Texas Republicans say we're going to deputize police officers as immigration agents. And Austin and, and the county we're in, Travis County, was the first place to really step up and fight back. And ultimately, we organized the biggest cities in Texas to sue the state to stop this law. And I was the lead lawyer for the city of Austin. And um, that was a moment when I realized that, you know, Texas really isn't a red state. We like to say it's a non-voting state. But the idea that these Texas cities are full of progressives who are ready to organize on behalf of undocumented families it really gave me a lot of courage. And so last cycle, I did run for this seat in the Texas 10th, took on Michael McCall, uh, an eight-time Republican incumbent who is one of the wealthiest members of Congress. He's worth over $300 million. He married into the Clear Channel fortune. His wife, Linda Mays, is the heiress to that fortune. And he basically won a gerrymandered seat in 2004, you know, after they redrew the Texas map and spent millions to win his first Republican primary and basically put his feet up. Um, the Democrats didn't even field a candidate against him in that first race. And he was winning elections by 20 and 30 percent. Uh, fast forward to 2016, he won by 19 percent. And so I'm, I'm thinking about running in, in late 2017. And basically at that point, my idea was, well, at least we can organize and you know, mobilize some of these volunteers, whether it's the indivisible activists, the Latino organizers, knock a whole bunch of doors, and see what's really possible. And I started out with a 19-point disadvantage, but mobilized over 1,000 volunteers, uh, brought together unions, environmental groups, youths, progressives, and we got that race down to 4% by November 2018, and basically turned what was supposed to be a safe Republican seat into what it now, in 2020, is a national battleground race. And so I'm running again to finish the job. Uh, unfortunately, don't have the support of the mainstream Democratic establishment, at least the D.C. establishment, because I don't fit with their theory. You know, I, I can't raise $500,000 in two months by calling my friends. Uh, I don't hire D.C. consultants who want to basically build a campaign that's all about ads and mail pieces. You know, I'm an organizer. When I was in the teachers union, I was a, a representative at my school site. Uh, as a civil rights lawyer, I was a movement lawyer as part of you know, major civil rights cases. And so I can do that and I can help build a movement, uh, but I'm not going to be their kind of you know, corporate PAC type candidate. And so really what I've been having to do is fight on two fronts. One, uh, kind of hold off the, the Democratic establishment that would rather replace me as a Democratic nominee, and there's two people running against me in the primary, but also build the kind of coalition uh, to beat McCall in November. And so... Yeah, so we're approaching March 3rd, which is our election in the primary. Yeah, that, that's going to be a very, very huge day. And I, I just want to say, like, we've, we've been talking about Texas turning blue now for, what, more than a decade, just generally speaking. And we're not really, really, like, seeing that as a possibility now that there are progressives running in Texas. Like, we have Donna Imam. I just had her on the show. We have Sema Hernandez running for the Senate. And... The Democratic Party has ignored these types of candidates, candidates such as yourself, and that really is just the biggest missed opportunity ever because you can't win if you don't compete. And so for them to kind of just throw their hands up and kind of like give up and not even try to win, it really it shows that the state of the National Democratic Party, at least, is incredibly just it feels hopeless. So I'm curious. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, you're able to beat McCall. If you're elected, like there's going to be no question, you'll be marginalized in in the House of Representatives. You know, there's going to be 
a lot of pressure on you to conform. So how do you beat back against that, knowing that you have Democratic Party leadership who may hold committee assignments over your head? Like, how do you beat the machine? Because you're already fighting it now. So if you're in power, like, how do you actually affect change? Right. That's the big question. Um, I mean, I, I think there's multiple layers to the strategy, right? I mean, first is to unite with like-minded folks. I think the Progressive Caucus, although, you know, all 100 members or so, they're not all really true progressives. Uh, there's a lot of folks there with good hearts and, and a solid voting record. And so, to, you know, to be an adjunct to the squad or what have you, uh, and to join those folks and to fight for Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and work within the system. Um, but at the same time, I have to continue to build the base outside of, of D.C. and outside of my official capacity. And so the way I'm going to beat McCall, for example, in November is basically by uniting the progressive constituencies at the two ends of this district. Uh, the Texas 10th basically goes from northwest of Austin, uh, crosses seven rural counties, and then ends up in these Houston suburbs. So in the general election, I can draw upon progressives at both ends of the district and you know, get unions and other folks to hit doors at, at both ends. And that's how we're going to beat McCall. But to keep power afterwards, um, especially given that they're going to redistrict Texas in 2021, and they might redraw this district in a way that benefits a more conservative Democrat, for example, who already holds office, I'm going to have to keep people engaged. And so to me, you know, you can't just run a movement campaign. You also have to be a, a movement representative. And to me, that's that's job security if you can do that. Yeah. And I like how a lot of the candidates such as yourself, you talk about organizing, but bringing that organizer mentality into the House of Representatives. And that's what we're kind of seeing with Bernie Sanders. You know, he wants to be the organizer in chief. We're seeing this really successfully replicated in Seattle with Shama Sawan. So it really is important. And I'm so glad to see grassroots candidates adopt this type of mentality because this really is the ticket. Like, there's no other way that you can win if you don't mobilize voters and get out the base. And I'm glad that there are people finally running for Congress to acknowledge that Democrats lose if Democrats stay home and don't turn out. And that's so important. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because you're running in in texas as a progressive um and you are unapologetically like immigrant rights and whatnot so how do you respond because i don't i don't know what it's like in texas like i'm assuming there's a lot of like build the wall trump people there so what is your response to them when canvassing like what what do you tell team members to say when they're knocking on doors because i think this is something that we can learn from candidates like you who are in this unique situation well, big picture, you know, I've knocked on some of those doors. You know, I've met old timers who tell me, you know, I'm not racist, but, and then they proceed to tell me racist things, you know. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, my wife is uh, Nigerian uh, from the north of Nigeria. My kids are mixed race. And so uh, you can basically see it on my campaign card, what kind of family I have. But big picture, you know, we don't have to reach those people to win races like this. And, and there's this myth that you have to, you know, somehow turn or change the mind of some sort of mythical swing voter white working class voter to win races like this. And that's certainly not true in Texas 10. And luckily, I have basically a record in 2018 that I can point to, you know, an underfunded campaign that made up 15 points on one of the wealthiest members of Congress. But also in this district, when uh, Beto O'Rourke took on Ted Cruz, he actually beat Ted Cruz in this district by a fraction of a percentage point, running on a progressive platform. I mean, Beto's Senate race was actually more progressive in some ways than his presidential campaign. He was actively talking about a Green New Deal and Medicare for All, for example. And so I can basically point to that. And Beto is like completely non-controversial uh, for just about every Texas Democrat. Uh, hey, he, he beat Cruz in this district. If I just have a little more resources, a little more belief in my viability, we can win too. Yeah, that's really encouraging. And I, I like that you said that. Like, You don't have to win by like changing the minds of people who are 
not going to jump on board. And I think that that's one thing that is a little bit discouraging to see with national Democrats. Like there's always this sense to roll over and die the minute you face any sort of pushback whatsoever. And, you know, there's like America is a fairly progressive country. Like we don't see that and media pundits won't tell you that because people self-identify as conservative. But when you look at the issues, people are very progressive. Like they want Medicare for all. Everybody wants healthcare. Nobody likes their private insurance. Like we want to make uh, ends meet. We want a minimum living wage. So, I mean, it's just, it's, this is all common sense, I feel like. And it's so refreshing to see people just finally say, yes, this is my strategy. Um, so one thing that I wanted to ask, let's say you're able to win. There is a lot that we have to do just as a movement. What do you think you would focus on within that first year or so? Because you can't focus on everything. So you got to kind of narrow that focus. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, best case scenario, Bernie's in the White House, Democrats take back the House and the Senate, or they keep the House and they take back the Senate. What would you individually want to push for? What would be like at the, the front of your agenda? Sure. Um, so big issues for me have been uh, healthcare the climate and voting rights. You know, I, I made national news in 2018 as a candidate uh, because I had a staffer arrested at Prairie View A&M University, basically fighting for the right to vote uh, of students at that historically black college. Um, and, you know, that's a big issue for me. Healthcare obviously is a national issue. But one issue where I think I can make a big difference is climate change. Uh, this district basically unites environmentalists in Austin, a coal plant in uh, the rural county in the middle of this district in Fayette County, and then these Houston area fossil fuel workers and oil and gas industry workers uh, who have a more conservative view. But this coal plant is polluting the water underneath dozens of Texas counties. Houston has had five 500-year flood events in the last five years. I mean, it sounds absurd, but you know, five one in 500-year events in five years. And so there's this amazing opportunity to talk about environmental issues and climate change in the heart of, of oil and gas country. And so I, I actually, there was a, a national article about my campaign a couple of weeks ago, Kate Aronoff wrote for uh, the New Republic about my campaign because I went to the Texas AFL-CIO convention and I thought this was going to be an easy endorsement. Um, I'm a two-time union member myself as a teacher and city worker. My campaign is unionized, one of the rare congressional campaigns to be unionized. I come from a union family and had the Austin Labor Council support. But it turned out when I got to the convention that some of these oil and gas workers, the steel workers, you know, the seafarers, uh, pipe fitters had concerns about my campaign and were willing to uh, support an anti-union opponent of mine in the Democratic primary because I said the words Green New Deal. Like those three words scared the shit out of these folks. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, I basically spent three days caucusing with every union in the state of Texas. And by the end of it, uh, was able to win over enough of these folks, including the refinery workers, the, uh, the ship operators, that... I'm going to take strong action on climate change, but I'm not going to take action until labor is at the bargaining table with us, until they're comfortable with the just transition. And that's critical, right? If the Green New Deal is going to be a national jobs program, putting millions of Americans to work, building a renewable economy, we need unions right there with us. We're, there's no way we can pass it without them. And so that, that accomplishment of, of winning the trust of Houston fossil fuel workers for a campaign that's fighting for a Green New Deal gave me a lot of hope. And what I'd like to do in Congress is basically bring the voice of those folks uh, to the bargaining table in D.C., uh, you know, of the workers who will be most affected by this transition and make sure their voices are heard. Um, I also have an opportunity to, to really focus on this coal plant, uh, the environmental calamity. I mean, it's poisoning people. It's causing cancer. It's causing asthma, lead poisoning in children. 
It's killing livestock and, and orchards, you know, agriculture. But no one's paid attention to it because in Texas, the Environmental Commission is controlled by the Republican Party. They turn their, you know, blind eye. They don't look at fracking that's going on. And so I think if I could get on the right committee, uh, you know, a science and technology committee and hold hearings uh, to basically shine a light on this coal plant and then push for a just transition to a more renewable industry, that would be a, a big accomplishment. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that you it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, independent, like everybody wants breathable air, clean, drinkable water. This is not a partisan issue. So, I mean, I feel like that is how you can win over some of the people who are more reluctant, who aren't on board with, you know, social and even economic issues with regard to, you know, progressivism and whatnot. But I wanted to ask you, because you, you talk about your connections to unions and whatnot, and the Democratic Party, they kind of moved away from labor and unions, but we see a lot of Democrats, more centrist Democrats. I just saw a tweet from Pete Buttigieg a couple of days ago where he talked about how um, we can't have Medicare for all because unions don't want Medicare for all. You know, that's that's something that they provide. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So how do you respond to that? Like this attempt to pit workers against um everyone else and say, no, you know, you can't have Medicare for all because unions fought for it. Like, how do you respond just individually to that? Yeah, I've heard the same thing. You know, when I work with the machinists, for example, they've got some good health care programs they've bargained for. I mean, I think the simplest answer is you will have wonderful health care. We're going to improve and expand on Medicare. And at the same time, you're going to get higher wages because you don't have to bargain for health care. And that, you know, that's like the, the take home. Uh, you know, what I've realized in this conversation about the Green New Deal and also Medicare for All is that there really isn't much trust in government. And, and that's a huge problem for us as progressives because we're, we're advocating for New Deal style programs. But for the last 40 years, the right wing has been attacking the government and saying, you know, the free market is going to take care of you. And so we really need to build trust. And so um, for some of these programs, we're going to have to do bite-sized uh, improvements. I think the Green New Deal is an example of, well, we're going to have to take on, you know, industry by industry. You know, Andy Levin and, and uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez are pushing an electric vehicle uh, bill right now. I mean, we're just going to have to do step by step to show how each of these programs can benefit people's lives. Now, that's not to say I agree with this idea of a two-step to the public option and then to Medicare for all. I think we'll miss a huge opportunity in that. But we have to recognize that we do need to build a lot of trust in the government uh, before folks will really be on board with us. Yeah, I agree with that because, I mean, we see a lot of things get broken oftentimes by private companies. Um, but still, you know, these these types of Republicans, they will water down some type of social safety net and then point to that as an example as why, you know, government doesn't work. So they break it and then use that as evidence why big government is bad. So I totally agree. That's such a great point. And you being attentive to that, I think that's really important because building trust really is important because if we do have all of these ideas that, you know, involve expanding the size of government and shrinking the size of the private sector in certain areas. Yeah, that that is that's really important. And I feel like you have that background, like you're uniquely positioned to do that because you're you're from Texas, like nationally, you'd have that credibility. You're representing a, you know, a historically red state. Um, so, yeah, I think that your campaign is so dynamic. It's so interesting. And I'm, I'm really encouraged by the fact that we see progressives running everywhere, including in red states. So, of course, shout out to all of the progressives that are running in these areas that the Democratic Party doesn't even want to try to compete in. I think it's possible. So anyone who's watching, they're going to be convinced because you're a phenomenal candidate. So tell us what we can do to help you if we live in Texas or outside of the state. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Mike. 
Well, big picture, you know, the, the election here in Texas, like California, is March 3rd. So we're in the stretch run here. Um, my campaign has the most dynamic field program out there. We've already knocked over 30,000 doors. Uh, we've identified a full 20% of the votes we need to win on March 3rd, which is a great number to have. But uh, to the extent anyone's willing to chip in, $5 or $10, of course, every bit makes a difference. Basically, we can contact 10 voters with $10. Um, uh, another thing that folks can do is we're going to be having national phone banks every Wednesday night. And so if folks go to my website and sign up as a volunteer, uh, you can join the phone bank brigade. Uh, and if you're not able to get engaged before March 3rd, there's, there's time after that to write postcards and to help out. Uh, but if anyone is close by, I mean, the most effective way to uh, win support is that one-to-one -one voter contact. And, and that's the beauty of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And my campaign, you know, my opponents have money. Like, they're buying TV ads. They're, they're sending all these mailers. And they're part of this paradigm that's essentially cynical about voter behavior. It's like, let's just flood everybody for three weeks with ads and mail and try to manipulate them into voting a certain way. In my campaign, we've, we're taking the long view. You know, we've been fighting on local and social justice issues year-round, and to me, that's the kind of support and the base we need to build. But to the extent anyone's willing to come knock doors with us, uh, meet voters face-to-face, -face, either in the cities or in the rural areas, we'd love to have them. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just add to that, like, this election is taking place on Super Tuesday, so everyone's heads, you know, they're, they're everywhere. We have elections taking place across the country, so we have to make sure that we really focus on these types of races like Mike's race because it's it's crucial that we get not just a Bernie Sanders presidency, but a House of Representatives that has a lot of progressives that will actually vote for Medicare for All, vote for a Green New Deal, because our job is going to be very difficult if we have the White House but not, you know, a very friendly Congress to progressives. So, it, like, every little bit helps. Certainly, if you're in that 10th district, get out there, knock on some doors, because this is a down payment for a better future. And it's going to be a tough fight, but this is only the start. So, you know, buckle up. It's, it's going to be a long ride, but I think that you can do it. Like, you've already proven, Mike, that you ha can run a stellar campaign. And, yeah, I look forward to it. We'll be rooting for you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this... uh you know, this district, the Texas 10th, is on everyone's list of the top 10 or 15 races Democrats can pick up in 2020. And so the idea that I might be one of a small handful of progressives in one of these so-called swing districts, uh, I hope we'll have some national attention in, in the fall. And so I'd love to stay in contact with you. I really appreciate everything you're doing to, uh, you know, share the word. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Take care. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. You too. Well, that is all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far, as usual, we're not going to leave without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. And even if you can't pitch in a penny, so long as you are liking our videos and commenting, that actually really does help because it boosts our engagement on YouTube. And that gives us a little bit of a bump in the algorithm. So anything you can do, we truly appreciate it because we know that we're all a little bit strapped for cash because we're saying it all to Bernie Sanders and all of these congressional candidates who are fantastic. So any way that you can help, likes on a video, bare minimum, it really goes a long way. So thank you all so much. That's all I've got. I will see you next week. Take care, everyone.